Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. Comfortably on the right, your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How you guys doing this morning? Cold out there this morning. Fry yay. Yeah. Yes, it is. Is it cold to you? Yes. Get out of here. Yes. It's not super, super cold to me. Oh, it's really? Cold, it's yeah. cold to me. And, and I'm usually and, the and one I'm, freezing. Yeah. And I'm the one who walks. In, I know. In, walks to the metro with this. Yeah. Like, this is what I have on. So you were good with I this was, one. I was fine. Okay, so I'm the one, only one who's <laughs> yeah, complaining it, about the, the weather. Californian wasn't complaining this <laughs> right, morning. Right, I know, right? I was but like, it's supposed to be cold. I think today. Oh, is it? I think it's supposed to be. Maybe because I had to walk. From where I had to walk. Usually I'm in front of the building, but this time around I had to walk from, uh, from the pocket space. Had I don't do, know. Had to do a little more circling little, this morning. What? You <laughs> what? Gave the up producer on beat me to the. Yeah, I, I got just in time to see the producer take the spot. I was like, uh, <clears throat> but no, that's fine. That's fine. It's Friday, going into the weekends. Yes. Can't I complain. Was, I was just ch- telling JT in the elevator yesterday that I could really make a case if I wanted to argue the wokeism. I could really make a case about why Mayor Bowser is racist when it comes to parking. <laughs> well, is that because of the time where people have to get parking? Well, no. What's the angle? Well, okay, so the racism for parking is that, okay, so D.C. parking is exorbitant. I'm sure even people that don't own cars know. Parking prices in garages here are exorbitant. We're talking $30 for four hours, right? Three, four hours. Like, they'll give you the first two hours, maybe an hour cheap, and then after that, it automatically becomes like 30 bucks. That's pretty common here. Well, who is disproportionately poorer that has to pay? It's basically an extra tax for people that need to come to work that Mm -hmm. don't make that much money. Who are those people? Yeah. Primarily minorities, people of color, right? And here's Mayor Bowser spending, I don't know, God, God knows how many tens of thousands of dollars painting the Black Lives Matter (laughs) plaza or whatever, you could be putting out parking spaces, you know, like throughout the city here and there where you can, painting some paint some lines for parking rather than BLM that nobody even goes to acknowledge. Like it's moment- Oh, the thing in the street. Yeah, it's it's over. The moment was over. People took photos, whatever. The, The protests were over. Now people just drive over it as a nuisance because it's lumpy. And by the way, well, you know, even our, tickets. Yeah, I our, mean, our audience should know that we, because we're here at seven o'clock, we get a, we're here with the, you know, cafeteria workers, with the construction yeah. workers. Yeah. Like we're up with with the people right. who have to be at work early. With, with blue collar laborers. Yes. <laughs> and so these people, if they can't find the parking, what do they do? Right. Then they're forced into those $30 garages, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a huge chunk of their weekly pay. And God forbid they get a ticket. Right. Oh, God. God forbid they get a ticket. Or they're on Metro, and they just jump over the turnstile. (laughs) (laughs) Because I see it every day. I've never seen that here. Yeah, I've never seen anybody jump over the turnstile. I've seen it in New York. It's like every day at every station. Really? Throughout it's the day. that prevalent. It's that is that prevalent, and so much so now they're getting ready to um, consider legislation to just go ahead and make the metro buses free because no one pays. Good. Well, good. No, no one pays. Good. I love that because it, at the very least, it gives it's 
Look, if you are poor and you have to add transportation to your budgeting, that is brutal. Yeah. Like even like, let's say if you're working here, where do you park? You got to either pay for outside, you got to pay right. for a garage or something else. Meaning you got to, on some level, be making enough to be able to afford that stuff. And yeah, DC they should is give it to free. swimming in cash. I know. Yeah, they can afford DC, it. Their coffers I mean, are full. We're not talking about federal government. We're talking about DC right. is swimming in. Mayor Bowser got the dough. Do yeah. yeah, they can afford it. She yeah. got the dough. But let's yes. get to some domestic news. If you haven't heard, the U.S. House of Representatives on yesterday passed a new version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. It now will provide 800 and, well, $847 billion in discretionary defense and energy-related funding, including $10 billion in security aid for Taiwan and $800 million for Ukraine. House lawmakers passed the NDAA in a vote of 350 to 80, advancing the legislation by the Senate, who is slated to pass it before the end of year. The bill required a two-thirds majority to advance and received both bipartisan support in opposition with 45 Democrats and 35 Republicans voting against it. The $847 billion discretionary funding top line for fiscal 2023 included the NDAA does not account for the $11 billion in national defense authorizations outside the jurisdiction of the House Armed Services Committee. Congress is providing billions more than requested by U.S. President Joe Biden. So Congress is giving more money than the president even asked for. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jeez. Just oh, give you more. You didn't ask for it. The UFO thing is in this too. Basically to protect whistleblowers. In the India, they put, so they put that in there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because if you think back to it, it was um, Marco Rubio that initially put in the NDAA in order to do the investigation of the UFO thing in the first place. Now, initially, God, man, the history of this, gets, it gets warped. Harry Reid was friends with Bob Bigelow. Harry Reid was into the UFO subject. So Harry Reid is the one who put in the ATIP program in general. Um, Rubio, especially after the three videos were released from the Pentagon, Rubio comes out and puts in a thing for the NDAA basically saying we need to investigate this. They agreed upon investigating. Then you get an escalation where you get, oh man, Gillibrand expanded on Rubio. I mean, he, she wildly expanded what the investigation was going to be and everything else. And so now the issue is, okay, people who need to come forward, can those people be prosecuted for some kind of military contract or some kind of deal with the government if they come forward? So the thought is, protect the whistleblowers. Wow. Congresses sounds like they it's so weird, right? Wow. It's like in one sense these guys are giving the president more money than in other sense. But on the other, let's put the alien thing on the side. Like protect that's the whistleblower. Fascinating. More domestic news: Senior Republicans overseeing foreign affairs have demanded detailed information from the GAO, which is you know short for the Government Accountability Office, on Washington security aid to Kiev amid Russian Russia's ongoing special military operation in Ukraine. In a letter to the GAO on Thursday, House Foreign Affairs Committee lead Republican Michael McCall and Senator Jim Reich, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Panel, wrote that they want information on how the U.S. administration is monitoring the almost $14.9 billion in funds that were allocated for Ukraine and dispersed through the U.S. Agency for International Development. 
USAID and the State Department. The lawmakers stressed the necessity of the USAID and the Department of State to continue to work with haste to use these funds to address the dire needs of the people of Ukraine. Our favorite techie, U.S. billionaire, entrepreneur, and newly minted Twitter owner, Elon Musk said on Friday that the company had been working on a software update to let users know if they have been shadow banned. Twitter is working on a software update that will show your true account status so you clearly know if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal. Musk said this on Twitter. It is worth mentioning if you did not know something else I guess we could add, add to the headlines. On yesterday, uh, oh, gee, what is her name? The Barry reporter Weiss. Barry, Barry Weiss, Weiss. Yeah. Twitter 2. released 0. Twitter 2.0. So the files. And basically, this was more so about what we were just saying, shadow ban. And the efforts that were taken to shadow ban. Um, definitely something on the conservative side, but it's pretty interesting. I'm sure we'll get into it um, and in And some the of show. us in the center. And yeah. on the left, I mean, keep in mind, if you're talking about like Palestinians, if you're talking about, let's say, like Telesur, they were getting rid of those places. I mean, it was, yeah. But some interesting stuff for Barry. But like I said, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, um, today. But Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and Mark Takano delivered a, delivered a letter to Swift to Twitter CEO Elon Musk, urging him to address the purported rise in so-called hate speech on the social media platform. This comes after White House Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre claimed that there was a rising sentiment, rising hate and anti-Semitism on Twitter. But the lawmakers, doing apparently the Biden administration's bidding, alleged that slurs against Black people have tripled. Slurs against women are up by one-third. Slurs against gay men are up by 58%. And slurs against Jewish people are up 61%. Citing data from the Center for Countering Digital Hate. The letter reads, as members of Congress, we are deeply concerned about the recent rise in hate speech on Twitter. Analysis by independent researchers indicates Twitter has become an increasingly toxic place for our constituents, and we are reaching out to you to understand the actions Twitter is taking to combat this increase in harmful intent, content. The letter, which was sent on Thursday, said, that is interesting. International news, Saudi and Chinese companies have signed 34 investment agreements as part of Chinese President Xi Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia, Saudi state media reported on Thursday. The signing ceremony took place on Wednesday. The deals cover green energy, hydrogen production, photovoltaic energy. Well done. I said said it right. (laughs) Information technologies and services, transport, logistics, medical industry, and construction. The agreements reflect Saudi Arabia and China's intention to boost bilateral cooperation in all areas. Saudi Investment Minister Khalid bin Abdulaziz Al-Fali was cited as saying in the report. The drone used by Ukraine to attempt an attack on two Russian military airfields was modernized with the participation of a corporation from the United States. 
Konstantin Gavrilov, the head of Russian the, the Russian delegation at the Military Security and Arms Control Talk, said in Vienna, quoting, Firstly, during 2022, the Kharkov aviation plant carried out work to modernize the mentioned UAVs with the participation of specialists from the Kiev Design Bureau, Luch, Luch, and U.S. corporation Raytheon Technologies. The range of this drone is up to 1,000 kilometers. It is clear in which the direction it was planned to be used. Gavril, Gavrilov told Sputnik on Thursday, commenting on the possible involvement of NATO countries in the attack. Going on to quote, it is well known that the overwhelming majority of targets targeted by neo-Nazis are determined by the Western masters of the Kiev regime. And on this day in history in 1968, in the mother of all demos, Douglas Engelbart demonstrates the computer system NLS, the online system, to a live audience in San Francisco, shows for the first time the mouse, word processing, windows, hypertext links, video conferencing, real-time collaboration, and other modern computing concepts. It is worth noting this is during the era of Wonder Woman and Six Billion Dollar Man. <laughs> So we have come a long way with technology. It was just six million. Indeed. It was just six million? Yeah. What it, was they didn't get the billion. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. back then, remember, Dr. Evil was like one million dollars. Yeah, exactly. Dollars. Exactly. As if it's a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> and the Batman, boom, pow. Yeah. Yes. Also, in 1990, Lake Walesa, Lake Walesa wins Poland's first direct presidential election in Poland in, in 1992. U.S. Marines and allied nations launch an amphibious and airborne operation in Mogadishu, Somalia, to restore order to the war-torn nation. It was authorized by U.N. Security Council Resolution 794, which was passed on December 3rd. And those are your headlines for Friday, December 9th, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. So, yeah, before going into the monologue, the Barry Weiss thing real quick. Um, second installment, apparently there are going to be more. And this was one of those things where Baker apparently was either scrubbing or not necessarily giving out. And so Weiss eventually gets her hand on it. And to your point, shadow banning is extensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like Twitter lists of people who are just blacklisted and banned. I mean, in some cases, in all of the cases, the people didn't know that they were being I... blacklisted and banned. And they, but Before they even put the label on me, I noticed a sharp decrease yeah. in interactions on my tweets. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after the war began, they slapped the Russian state-affiliated media on me. Mm-hmm. And then for the last many months, I've had hundreds of followers go, I can't find you even when I search for you. I can't find your tweets. I can't, yes. I can't see your profile. My own husband couldn't find me. And that's what they said. It's visibility filter. Right. Basically, because Twitter said, we don't shadow ban people. Lies. Whatever. That's totally not true. Whatever. So basically, and whatever they say, think the opposite. Think the opposite. And so people understand when we're talking about shadow banning. Um, so, for instance, you there's a there's something in their out their system where they can prevent you from even coming up in mm-hmm. in the, the search. search. Yeah, that was me. So it isn't just their cer- certain speech or for any period. They're literally 
banning you're people blackballed. from being right. able to find you are the blackballed. person. Right. Or your tweets. Or your And by the way, easy to do. It's just a flag. I mean, like, meaning... Well, once the system's in place, they right. just throw your account name on there. Right. And you're, boom, you're well, done. You put, like, a status on the person. Let's say, like, right. two is active, like three tags. is something. Yeah, like right. tags that they add. And so the it. person, you know, as you do a search, give me everybody with a visibility level of X. Right. And X is basically show the tweets. And so other people are just squandering around, why are my followers not going up? Right. Why am I getting any more me. connections? Yeah. I, I had um, not only search suppression, mm-hmm. um, which is like demonstrable. I can show you tweets from 10 years ago when Twitter was still in its infancy and um, pre, pre my era at RT America. Yeah. I, and there were fewer people on Twitter and I had more interactions back then than I do now. And there were so far few less people. On Twitter. And libs of TikTok. I don't know if you saw the reporting on on the, how yeah. libs of TikTok yeah. shadow ban. Libs of TikTok. And they said they have the, um, Barry posted the um, context for that. Libs of TikTok, they were not accused of doing anything. Right. They literally were not accused of doing anything. Because it was a repost but account. But they were shadow <laughs> yeah. banned. And, and yeah, and libs of TikTok, they didn't have, they didn't actually make commentary. They right. retweeted they or just, shared. It's a repost. Of what Democrats or, you know, basically not just Democrats, but anybody, but normally liberals, um, said on TikTok. Yeah. They just reposted. And, and even that was too far. Even that was too false. But even though they knew at the time that they had done, they had violated nothing. Wow. But they shadow banned them. How is this not a violation of Section 230? Right, you've become a publisher. You've become a publisher. Right. Yeah, it's this hard is not to a argue that platform. you're not doing publishing. Yeah, you're you're making a decision on we want this Editorial person versus decisions. not that person based on political identity. Whether that's if MSNBC would be perfectly at home with well, this. I wouldn't even narrow it to political identity. It would just be it's just the fact that they're cherry picking at all. Yeah, who can say anything? Yeah, period. It's that's ugly. I'm just saying that's ugly. When Republicans kept saying, oh, we were being shadow banned. They're pushing back against us. They're not letting us say X or Y. I mean, this is pretty clear at this point that they weren't wrong. Lives of TikTok seven times. They were suspended seven times in this year. Wow. Seven. Wow. That's amazing. Let's do this. We're going to come back to the story later in the show. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Abdul, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as you all know, Brittany Griner is coming home. Brittany Griner is coming home. So the swap between my... Um, Brittany Griner and Victor Boot took place in Abu Dhabi Airport um, at the UAE. And this was after months of negotiations between the United States and Russia on this. Now, keep in mind, Russia had been trying to come up with a policy in order to exchange people anyway. And it was the U.S. for the longest time was like, nope, 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 nope. The moment that um, a lesbian black woman gets arrested, that can dribble a ball and that can shoot a ball. Oh, now we need to do something about it. We need to move heaven and earth in order to make this deal go through. Keep in mind, there are other people 
Americans sitting in Russian jails. And for whatever particular reason, those people didn't rise to the level of the occasion where they wanted or needed to get them out with all due haste. Nevertheless, Griner was. Now, I don't say that in the sense that I think it was a great thing that she was put in a cage. I think I've said on more than one occasion, I don't think anybody should be put in a cage for smoking a plant. I think that is deplorable and that is problematic. By the same token, let's be honest, the way that they've been reporting the story has been warped to a warped extent. I mean, all things being equal, and I'll just read it right here. Griner was arrested at Moscow Airport back in February when cannabis oil was found in her luggage. In August, she was sentenced to nine years in a penal colony on drug charges. Griner pleaded guilty, but maintained she did not intend to break any laws and had simply packed a vape containing cannabis oil accidentally. Now, that could be true. That could be true. I don't know if I believe it, but it could be true. The problem is, if you were in a U.S. airport, the same thing would be true. Meaning, if I was flying into Mississippi, or if I was flying into Alabama, and they just so happened, I accidentally left a vape in my container, or for that matter, left pot in my container. Do you think that they would just give me a pass? Or do you think the TSA will escort me to a back room, they will put the stuff on the table, they would take pictures of that particular stuff, and they would take me to jail? It's that one. The thing is, even though half the country, give or take, is legalized marijuana, transporting that particular substance from point A to point B is still illegal. And there are various states in this country where you cannot possess pot at all. It is still illegal. My point here is if Griner was caught into any of those particular states, she would still have been prosecuted. Maybe not nine years. Maybe it would have been far less. But all things been equal, let's not pretend that that's not illegal and that all things been equal, any person, an American also in this country, would have also ended up behind bars. So there's that part. The other part is the extreme hypocrisy in all this. All things been equal, the fact that this country still has pot laws on the book. And because we still have marijuana laws on the book, how is the media, or for that matter, Joe Biden turning around and acting as if this was a tragic injustice? Yes, it was horrible that she was arrested for this. By the same token, if it's also under the guise of our own laws, is it an injustice when it happens in America? I want to play Biden's speech. This is Biden immediately after the release. This is him basically grandstanding. This came out yesterday. I believe it was early in the morning when we were basically reporting on this. Let's play the clip. Good morning, folks. And it is a good morning. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank all the hardworking public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. These past few months have been hell for Brittany and for Charlie and, uh, and her entire family and all her teammates back home. People all across the country have learned about Brittany's story, advocated for her release, stood with her through, throughout this terrible ordeal. And I know that support meant a lot to her family. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits, she uh, she's relieved to finally be heading home 
And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life, experienced a needless trauma. She deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal from her time being wrongfully detained. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance early this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. And I'm proud that today we have made one more family whole again. So welcome home. Yeah, let's stop there. I mean, the narrative that Biden is putting is basically the narrative that the U.S. has gone with. Unjustly detained, should have been at home all along. Needless trauma, wrongfully detained, totally illegitimate reasons. What he means by that is the United States wanted two people for one. They wanted um, Waylon and Griner for Victor Boot, the guy who had basically been in prison for years at this point. Here's the thing. The problem with this narrative is that if it's unjust to detain somebody for smuggling marijuana onto their person when they're going into a foreign country, especially a country that is against, meaning has laws on the books that basically say it's illegal. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. What about here? What about here? Meaning if that's so unjust in another country, wouldn't that make it by definition also unjust here? Are you saying that laws have a different value depending upon whether they're in that country versus this country? I mean, for God's sake, if you want to talk about unjust, what about Assange? I mean, they basically tortured the guy in an embassy, holding him to our laws, despite the fact not holding them to the protection of those laws. Chelsea Manning, I would say that again, whistleblower comes out, points out that we are killing people in Iraq, prosecuted that person, political prosecution. You go down the list on people, Victor Boot, even him. He was grabbed in another country and then put into a U.S. jail. We do it all the time. The woman that was in Canada, the Asian woman, the Chinese woman that gets picked up in Canadian airport and basically held in Canada at the behest of the United States. Meng Wanzhou. Thank you, Meng Wanzhou. Don't give me this, oh, this is so unjust prosecution and we never do this because we are love and light, et cetera. Nonsense. Nonsense. You want your laws to be respected by the same token you believe that there's no reason to respect the other country's laws. And I'm telling you, the rest of the world doesn't operate that particular way. I don't know whether she put the pot with her intentionally or not. It doesn't blow my mind that a basketball player would bring pot with them into a particular location if they didn't necessarily believe, A, it was a big deal, and B, it might have been legal where she was for, um, before, before, prior, and C, not thinking that it would be anything more than a particular slap on the wrist. Maybe she did it by accident. Maybe she didn't. Who knows? I have no idea. I am also pointing out to the way that we are talking about the story as if there's somehow a dramatic um, demarcation point between basically us putting people in prison versus another country doing it. One last point to this. Malik made this point yesterday, and he's right, a thousand percent right. When Joe Biden was running during the campaign trail, Biden made this argument of saying basically he would change the scheduling of marijuana. I remember this distinctly because I thought, okay, fair enough. You took mental note. I took mental note. <laughs> and not just a mental note, even bought stocks around pot legislation. I mean, pot stocks, because I thought, if nothing else, this is something he could do with a flick of his pen, no issue, solar power, et cetera. Well, Biden didn't do that, though. 
Biden gets in office and doesn't do really anything on this particular point, puts out a petty thing that only affects a few thousand people. And those people had already been in jail, meaning he did basically nothing. It is still against our laws. What Biden should have did was change the scheduling of marijuana at the point where he came out and let her go and said something like, look, it is unjust. It's an injustice that we are still putting people in a cage for marijuana. He can even go back and point to the Nixon administration where they were basically using this as a way to go after blacks and hippies. Whatever you need to do to make that argument, make that argument. But at the very least, you shouldn't leave this stage with this level of radical hypocrisy and nonsense. But look, I, got, I got one more thing. Go for it. There's uh, breaking news Yeah, uh, concerning the Biden administration officials. You remember the, um, the energy, the energy department official, the, uh, what is it, nuclear waste official, Sam Brinton, the okay. shaved head. Oh, the guy who stole the purse the in the dresses, airport. Yeah, the dresses, yeah, the dresses and women's yeah. clothes. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now there is a federal warrant for their arrest. Really? Because Sam Brinton did it again at the Las Vegas airport. Again? Stole some expensive luggage again. But he knew that the luggage wasn't... Yes, JT, that's my point. Yeah. This sounds like a very stable person working in our energy department with nuclear. Totally, yeah, totally want this person handling nuclear stuff. This, this sounds like grounds for um, revoking security clearance. Yes. he has You're a, a thief. security clearance. This is the second theft. You're a thief. Las Vegas airport this time. The other one was what, here, right? Like DCA or... Or it was one of these. It was yeah. local. It yeah, was it was local. one of these. Basically, took the clothes. And if I'm not mistaken, like, it didn't even luggage. have luggage with him, didn't right? Have right. Didn't have luggage. Didn't have luggage, but left with luggage. Yeah. And so how do you do that? Same thing now in Las Vegas. I guess Sam and friends or so whoever. What happened in Vegas didn't stay. Didn't in Vegas, stay in or? Vegas no. because the person looking for their luggage. There's video footage again. I mean, does Sam not realize there are cameras everywhere? But anyway. Uh, That's I, I know, amazing. I don't want to take up our, our guest time because yeah, we only amazing. have our next guest for a few more minutes. And we should warn the, the listeners and viewers that we're going to talk about the dark subject of euthanasia again coming up, this time with the medical professional who can shed some light um, on, you know, whether this is medically ethical. After we talked with the Canadian uh, person yesterday, uh, but we'll have a, a pain medicine specialist, a doctor, Coming on the show, coming up next to discuss all of this. But yeah, I had to give, give out that breaking news. Biden administration official Sam Brinton. Yes, stealing more luggage. Now a federal warrant for their arrest. How do you not get arrested for that? After the first time. Yeah, you stole people's Like, luggage. how are you? You need to get fired from your job. You're a thief. Yeah. You're a known thief. Shocking. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Abdul, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-hosts Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, by phone at 202-521-1320. We have a book show today. We'll see how we go. So play by you. Pack show. Yeah. yeah. Our, so as we said, we're continuing our, our conversation about the Canadian laws up north about euthanasia because last year 
there were 10,000 people that were either euthanized or had uh, physician-assisted suicide. Um, but the euthanasia was explained, uh, you know, by a, a Canadian activist yesterday. And today we're going to bring in an American doctor, Dr. John Dombrowski. He is the CEO of the Washington Pain Center. He's a practicing physician. So if anybody would know about palliative care, pain management, it would be Dr. Dombrowski. Dr. Dombrowski, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, what did you think when I sent you the story the other day? I mean, this this is right up your alley. Well, unfortunately, you know, this is not new. You know, we've talked about this almost, it's called a culture of death, really since the 90s. And this really started actually when I was really just getting out of medical school in 1989. Back at that time, there's a guy named, named Jack Kevorkian. Mm-hmm. He was a fellow who was a pathologist in Michigan. And they said, geez, if you have so much pain and things like that, you can't, you can't take it. I, I, you know, come to see me, a pathologist, and we'll hook you up to the Kevorkian machine. And it's basically just an infusion of chemicals that will kill somebody. And this is actually when the government really started, you know, having um, second thoughts about writing pain medications. Because of this, we started saying, what is your pain score? We now mandated that back from the federal government. And then with that, Purdue Pharma said, geez, I've got medications to do that. So this is not, this I've heard the story before. So I mean, and it's and it's you know it does sound very giving and loving. Why would I make someone suffer? Why would I make them do this? It's it's terrible. And then, but more importantly, look at the economics. Even the own government of Canada says if we do this, we will save money in terms of you know healthcare costs. This is very dangerous, and it's and it's inhuman. Human, you know, we, we used to have preservation of life. There's a thing from the Hippocratic Ghost, first do no harm. And actually, it says I should not even prescribe any deadly medicine that can cause harm, is what, is, what the real, is what the real quote says. I would ask anyone in your audience, look it up. What every physician, you know, raises their hands to God Apollo, because it's from the, you know, Hippocrates, of, of how to practice medicine. This is not medication. Though so, so, and again, so it's very dangerous. And actually, they started doing this, you know, in the terms of uh, the National Socialists and in Germany, when they did this, they they took care of the you know people who are retarded, mentally disabled, all and you know people who are infirm, just sick, just no one could care for them. And they, lovingly, they said, "Well, we could do this." And this is like social Darwinism. But you see where that led to. I mean, not everything is a Nazi thing. Not everything is a death camp. But they, they, they thought they were doing the right thing for these people. And we have to stand up for the culture of life. Well, I mean, Canada is discussing a new bill that would expand the use of their euthanasia, even to infants, Dr. Dombrowski, infants that are born with, you know, major, any kind of defect. I mean, but the language, I would say, is deliberately written, deliberately vague. So that way it could be left to interpretation. So, I mean, it, it could be up to the parent if, you know, your kid was born with a hole in its heart or, uh, you know, a cleft palate, it could be anything. And that child, that newborn baby could be put to death with as vague as this new bill is going to be. And that to me just, I can't, it, it's mind blowing, especially as a parent. Well, you're right. I mean, but this is where we get to the, the second part of it. Well, it saves a lot of money. Remember, Canada is a social is a social system for government uh, healthcare costs. So they have to cover everybody. So it is markedly cheaper to give someone, you know, two dollars worth of penithol or propofol and put them asleep, just like you would an animal, 
versus you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix their hole in the heart or whatever the case might be. Now, granted, you know there is a middle ground here. I mean, this is where you know. You, Extraordinary means. What is extraordinary? Or if there's no hope, you know, then, then giving someone, I mean, you should always give someone comfort, but you don't have to do extraordinary means in terms of, well, it's their fifth surgery and they've got this bleeding and we're just going to keep using blood, but it's not really going to, okay, this is reasonable. This is where you have moral ethics come into play. Okay, we're going to keep you comfortable. We're going to do extraordinary means. But the things we're talking about, like, you know, fixing a cleft palate or fixing a hole in the heart, this is not extraordinary. I mean, it sounds extraordinary, but now we've done it for 50 years now. It is almost routine medicine. Yes, it is expensive. Yes, that is true. But that's what we do as a human society. We're now digitizing life to say, if if you're not having a great time, if you're not enjoying your time on Facebook or Instagram, and you you've got this tremendous depression, it's better just to check out. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, well, I mean, I I was uh, sharing this story yesterday. I I know somebody, um, an older gentleman, um, who was suffering from cancer, and you know, um, it kept coming back, uh, throat cancer, and you know, he tried. Uh, chemo. He tried uh, every kind of new therapy that that he could, and so for his seventy third birthday, he chose to do physician assisted suicide in California, where it's legal. And he died in the comfort of his own home with his family around him. Um, you know, holding his hand as he took his last breath. Um, but that that is some that's a different conversation, right? Than having somebody you know w- with Canada's very laxed. Uh, loosely written laws to say, okay, I have a, this chronic condition, uh, put me out. Yeah, I mean, and again, this is where we, we have, you know, con- you know, conversations with patients that this is what medicine is all about. I mean, this is what I do in terms of my own practice, pain and suffering. You know, well, there's nothing more I can do for you. We haven't seen an anesthesiologist. They can put a needle in a place or someplace to burn the nerve or take care of the pain. And so, yes, I cannot, you know, we all have a shelf life. We all are going to die. That is factually true. But it's how do we live? We should be talking about the other side of it. How do we live our life? That how do we take it so it's less painful and all that sort of stuff? I mean, where is the culture of life? I mean, we've cheapened life so much and we've atomized it to see like, well, if I'm not doing this, it's not worth living. I mean, you know, you know, we don't have jobs out there. Drug use is tremendous out there. Uh, the internet, all that, you know, in, in, you know, immediate gratification, all these things. I mean, they, we, we've had them, but now it's just been accelerated. And with the COVID situation, we've been locked down for two years and you just, you know, just give me the Netflix and the DoorDash. And if I can't get that, well, life is not worth living. That we, you know, we have to rediscover what it means to be human and human connections outside of just the medical stuff. But again, if someone has chronic pain or cancer, we have people who are physicians who are trained to do this. It's called palliative care, and they will provide medications so you're comfortable. Their job is not to take your life, but to be comfortable. And if you, you know, if you slip into where you have in a coma and all that stuff, well, okay, this is okay. That's normal, but we're not overtly taking your life. And it's an interesting thing that you're finding that across the United States, there are differences in how states and even courts are interpreting these um, laws. Here in D.C., you have to um, you you're you have to be terminally ill to the point you're six months away from dying. And so that's one thing in D.C. But recently in Oregon, 
uh, state court just, um, it was an issue in state court. It, the Oregon itself was sued, but judges, they ended up finding the ultimate decision was, is that you can, you don't have to be a resident of the state of Oregon in order to qualify for the medical assisted suicide because there were, there was an advocacy group that sued Oregon on the behalf, I believe, of Washington state. And so now, and it was some issue of in Washington state, apparently there were religious institutions that did not allow, um, you know, their doctors to do, you know, assisted medical suicide, but they sued in court but now in Oregon, and I'm reading, it was an article in U.S. News about it, but now in Oregon, you can actually, they end the residency requirement. Wow. So you can just travel to Oregon? Yeah. yeah. Medical assistance suicide in Oregon is no longer limited to residents. And this was a decision back in March of this year. So, Dr. Dombrowski, it sounds like there's not enough laws or guardrails here in the U.S. to prevent this sort of thing from becoming a rampant thing. I mean, 10,000 people last year in Canada, I I don't know if I want to call it, took advantage of the system, but 10,000 people chose this path last year. I mean, and it just goes back to, to, I mean, you know, this this is the other side of the other side of the coin is the abortion issue, you know, with with the Dobbs decision where it all goes back to the states. So now you have states that are, you know, very open. You don't need to be a resident of our state to get your abortion. So again, it's the same culture of death. You know, come here; it doesn't make any difference. So we can do, we'll do that. So I mean, it's kind of the, it's two sides of kind of the same coin. I think at the end of the day, you can't legislate behavior. You know, we really have to have a real conversation. You know, uh, somehow getting people to understand that there's more to life than. Than what than what they're experiencing right now. Oh, my life is not fulfilled. You know, I've got cancer. Yes, okay, you do have cancer. That's true. But you know, we can help you. You know, there are things to live for. Maybe it's for you know meeting someone. Maybe it's seeing the senior grandchild. Maybe it's this or that. Or now, granted, there might be a case. Well, yes, we've kind of done everything we could. Let's put you up with a palliative care physician. And that does not mean taking your life. It just means keeping you comfortable. You know, again, there's again that that's a, it's a very it's a it's a razor's edge difference, but there is a difference. I mean, so the other one is first, you know, I'm, I'm not going to harm you. The other one is I'm intentionally giving you medications so you do take your last breath. And you know, to and to your point about abortion, um, DC, DC, they are now we're now in abortion sanctuary, so you can you don't have to be a resident of DC in order to oh get abortion take or an adult. Yeah. Or an adult. Yeah. You can be a child. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, again, I mean, everything, the abortion thing, it's, it's, it's very controversial. I don't need to speak to that. I'm just kind of saying it's kind of two sides of the same coin with respect to the openness of a state. Well, you're not, come on in, but we'll do that for you. But I think the main thing is we need to change hearts and minds of, of people who are, you know, have chronic illnesses, but you know, you're just talking chronic illnesses, bad cancer. We can all say, God, that's terrible. I wouldn't want that to go on. Well, you're talking about children and you're talking about depression now. And, and, you know, I'm so depressed. I want to. I want to kill myself. That granted, years ago, that used to be illegal to take your life. <laughs> you know, if you survived, they would arrest you. But now, you know, we are almost applauding it. Or you know, well, let, let's let's just help you do this. So clearly, we are. We've moved into a you know a a, a culture where life is cheap. Um, we we don't want to talk to anyone out of you know out of this because 
you know, there's so much confusion right there in, in our life right now. And, uh, you know, the economies are tough right now. Jobs are, are very fragile. It, inflation is 20%. I mean, all these things are going the wrong direction. So, you know, we have two choices. Number one choice, we can embrace, you know, life. And, and we, 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 we got to, you know, find out what it means to be a man or a woman and a family together. Or I'm just punching out because it's not worth living. Yeah. And unfortunately, the government makes it very easy to do the latter because, well, it's just easier. Yeah. And you know, and, you're less money now. I don't have to pay for your medical care, Social Security. You're done. Yeah. Real briefly, Dr. Dombrowski, before we let you go, since you are an active working physician with your own clinic here, um, I'm sure you attend, you know, these uh, seminars, summits and what have you. Is there talk in the medical community about Canada's laws and could they perhaps seep down south to us? Yeah, so the uh, actually, as an anesthesiologist, the American side of anesthesiologists has a statement that we do not discuss or will not advise on how to take a life. So if you do, if we as an anesthesiologist discuss this with some, uh, well, I'm not doing it, but let me give you the cocktail, the medicines to do it with. We could be, you know, kicked out of our own society because this is not the practice of medicine. We were very clear about this. And so um, so we did, as a society, speak to that. Now, granted, I can't, you know, relegate, you know, someone's behavior as an individual, but if it came that they're an anesthesiologist, they did speak to this, and they're a member of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, which does represent 60,000 individuals, they could be asked, you know what, you're, you're not a member. That was not the practice of medicine. You're, you're kicked out. Oh, that's just it's such a dark topic, uh, but appreciate, I mean, you, you work in such a difficult field. Appreciate your expertise to uh, kind of spread this message and, and for us to have a better understanding here stateside. Uh, Dr. John Dombrowski, CEO of the Washington Pain Center, practicing physician right here in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for that expert insight. All right, uh, we're going to come back. Are we taking a break? We're taking a break. Oh, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with our next guest, uh, Luther Mercer, we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia and China, the big summit happening there. Don't want to miss that. We'll be right back. You're listening to Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to bring in our guests. We're joined with Luther Mercer. He joined the community Lyft as his president and CEO. He's lived and is an expert on China and their topics. Um, Luther, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, Hi, Luther. Thank you for joining us. Hey, hey, how you doing? It's been a long time. It has. Thank you so much for being with us. I didn't know that you lived in China. I know you're you're a a, a child mind expert. I didn't know you were lived in you lived in China. So that's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. I lived there for two years. I was in uh, Shenzhen and then also uh, Beijing. I was at Beida for uh, a year and studied Chinese language and culture and got a chance to work with the uh, Chinese government in the South. So interesting. Yeah, that was that kicked off my career after law school. Let me ask you this, this meeting um, that's taking place between the Middle East and China. Give me your take on the significance of this deal and this agreement between these two countries. Well, you know, based on my experience, you know, this is a uh, leap forward, a continued move forward for China. Uh, the energy and infrastructure deal, the strengthening of trade ties and security, and then also 
Uh, this helped with China's Belt and Road Initiative. And so all those things being that uh, China and Saudi Arabia are well aware of the challenges of the 21st century. China has an energy crunch construct they're dealing with. Also, Saudi Arabia is trying to position itself for the 21st century. And so uh, this relationship makes sense, or this deal makes sense to try to advance, especially as China is trying to maintain uh, the being the second largest economy in the world. What does it mean in practice, though, from the standpoint of Saudi Arabia, for example? Like, if you're the United States and you're watching this relationship between China and Saudi Arabia expand, and you as the country realized that your, let's say, strength of the dollar in itself around the globe on some level was part and parcel to this oil for gas or this oil for security deal that the United States and Saudi Arabia had at their disposal. Like, what are, you know, what is the West thinking about this if you were put yourself in that particular position? Well, you know, I think the West is well aware that, um, it, you know, it's had its challenges with Saudi Arabia, of course, with the issues with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, at this point, and then the oil markets, OPEC, et cetera. I mean, I think the United States should definitely be uh, looking at this new partnership that China is trying to push and evaluate not only its position as the you know dominant entity in this space, but also the idea that uh, you know China is, uh, is again making moves and deals in respect to its growth and being able to challenge the United States. And as the second largest economy, especially with the partnership around oil, I think the United States should be conscious of this and, uh, you know, look to figure out what this position is going to be foreign policy-wise moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even this idea of a multipolar world um, and on some level, this hits upon that idea. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, these countries were basically allies of the United States. And now these guys are agitating extremely strongly in order to get into BRICS. Um, like you said, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. From the standpoint of this kind of rising, let's say, secondary order, where you have the West that had hegemonic control of um, the globe in regards to economic might and everything else. Well, at this point, the West is taking it in the teeth. And all things been equal, you have like the BRIC nations, the Shanghai Cooperation nations. Those things are on the ascendant. Tell me what this looks like in the future going forward with this kind of multipolarity shift. And do you consider Saudi Arabia and China working together as being, let's say, a canary in a coal mine for the way this is going forward? Well, you know, I think you you said it within your question. It, it is a shift. And look, the 21st century is not a mystery. You know, we will have a new alignment in the world. You mentioned the BRIC countries, you mentioned the dynamics of which now Saudi Arabia, it, it realizes that uh, the petrol world, you know, it, it has to look to other things. I noticed in the energy conversation, there was a uh, part of the deal that talked about solar as well as other energy sources. I know that China is also trying to become the world leader in uh, sustainable renewables uh, in the next few years. So what we really have to realize is that this will take place. The question is, in this new order that's been created around the world over the probably the next 20, 30 years, what will China's 
role be in that? How will it look? I mean, we're, of course, we're about to go through a recession uh, globally that will impact China heavily. Of course, China is still dealing with social dynamics that, it, it, you know, it needs to work on. But over the next 20, 30, 40 years, you know, when you look at 2040 and 2050, there will be a new China, there will be a new United States, and how they positioning itself to be partners with other countries like Saudi Arabia uh, who will move. It, it, this is happening right in front of our eyes. And so I think, again, the idea that the world will be the same as it was in the 20th century, it will not in the next 30 years. And everybody's trying to jockey for what that positioning and role they would play, but they're having a look at security. Energy is one of those elements of security, but we also have to look at the larger dynamic of a new world. Really good point going forward. I mean, basically, what is China going to be in the future? Because that's basically what you're pointing out. Um, What is your take on that, by the way, though? I mean, is there... Oftentimes, the United States considers a loss of control to be existential on some level. And so our response to a lot of this stuff has been basically to try to keep the horse in the barn. Are you concerned that this escalates into something beyond the economic sphere in this attempt to basically prevent or stall China from their economic progress? Well, I've noticed this, and this is something I say historically. Anytime you have a race between two people, and one person takes time to say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to trip up the other person who's also running this race, and I'm going to take time to hold them down. Well, guess what? While you're standing at the starting line and you're trying to hold somebody else back, you're also holding back yourself, meaning both of you are not running the race anymore. And that allows for other dynamics to come into play. I think the United States does realize that China's going to be a major player. That's not an issue anymore. Everybody understands that. I think now China is dealing with its domestic and still its international challenges because, remember, China's still not fully integrated into the global community. It still kind of sees itself in, in one way but wants to deal with the world in another way. It has to evolve to what all countries have done over time or are doing, and that is be a part of a world community. And there's a new framework that China's going to have to work through over the next 30 years, 40 years, which I I think it's going to have to come to a conclusion on human rights. It's going to have to come to a conclusion on governmental structure. It's not come to conclusion in economic markets of of what a free market's going to look like for it. And that will actually determine what China's role will be in the 21st century. If it doesn't make those corrections that meet the world and where it's going, then no, it'll stay kind of in this amorphous bubble. And the United States, again, will continue to play its role exclusively in this hegemonic space. But if it does make some of these changes and continues to enter into the global framework with partnerships, beginning with this and others, uh, I think, you know, again, it's open to the possibilities 
of not only what China will be, but also where uh, the United States will position to be in the 21st century. Good point. Very good point. Um, one last question, 30 seconds. Basket of currencies. I would imagine this deal is going, when these conversations are going beyond just the energy agreements into this idea of, let's say, further cooperation, but further cooperation in this mindset of either a basket of currencies, trying to find a different reserve currency. I would imagine those conversations are taking place, but correct me if I'm wrong. I think it is, but we're, we're really far along. That, that's been something that is a uh, a kind of an illusion that's been dangled out there for a long time. Everybody thought the European Union with the euro, that was going to be a conversation. The UN is very far from really being able to be a reserve currency. It, it you know, it still relies so heavily, China relies so heavily on dollars that I, I I just I just think that that's one of those conversations that people like to talk about, but that's such a far off discussion. Absent absent now of some you know major thing happening in the world, that that conversation is is way off. <laughs> Several years off. Thank you for this, Luther Mercer. Um, joined the community Lyft as its president and CEO. He also lived and is an expert on China. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, Abdul, back in a moment, 8 o'clock hour. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. From the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. Comfortably on the right, your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on. Energy. Jam-packed Friday. Personally, I love jam-packed days. Like, because it's... It goes so fast. It goes so fast. Yeah. It's like you're... I mean, oftentimes you have to deal with multiple topics. And so you might hit like five or six different topics. You're dealing with multiple guests. And it's person, person, person. Especially if you're running a show by yourself. It's, well, yeah, it helps yeah, yeah. greatly when you're running a show by yourself. Well, I mean, you know, the two big stories today, JT and Malik, is uh, number one, <laughs> basketball superstar. That's right. Brittany Griner, home now. She's That's right. landed. Or I don't know if she's landed here. But, but she's, she's on the least, way. Yeah. yeah, she's en route. Um, she's in U.S. custody. Mm-hmm. But on the other flip side of this, there's somebody that's not in U.S. custody, and that is Sam Brinton. Yes. The nuclear waste expert, MIT grad or whatever. Yeah. At the Biden's was an Department MIT of grad? Yeah. MIT. Like, this Look, person is a smart person. That tells you, man, thieves. Don't mean they're crazy. Right. Don't mean they're not crazy. <laughs> right. Just because right. you're smart, very smart, smart enough to get to MIT, don't mean you're not crazy. Because is- Sam Brinton... Again, yeah. stole more luggage. Women's luggage. Presumably, I don't know, expensive, Ideally, yeah. expensive luggage. Expensive luggage in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Probably off the carousel again, right? Walking off with somebody's high-end luggage, presumably because those people have high-end things inside the high-end luggage. So I hope he's not there, wearing those people underwear. There is there is a federal I warrant hope not. It's like, oh, for look their at this, arrest. These lace undies just I don't make even my want- 
Well, like, I mean, look, he, great. he sounds like a, a klepto. Yeah, easily. A klepto, you think? Kleptomania. I mean, he's and he's I, going to an airport and stealing luggage. Right. And by the way, and we don't even know how often he's done this. Right. Right. These are just the two times that, have that been he's. If he wasn't in office, if he wasn't in office, would this story get attention? Well, think about criminals who they do things under the radar for so long, but right. then they push. Right. They push. Yeah, they keep pushing the envelope. To me, it sounds like you push it when you are in an airport with. Like cameras, cameras, yeah, it's like every super weird. So you don't, you have no sort of awareness. Like you're, pu- he wants to see if he could. I mean, to me, that just sounds like klepto. Like, and by the way, he is not somebody who is easy to miss. Right, no. <laughs> he's not somebody who's easy to miss. The guy wears heels. Yeah, the he's big very... guy, very bald head. Like you yeah. said, mustache, Muscular. Um, wearing dress, like yeah. these kind of dresses and everything else. So, like dresses that Liza Minnelli would wear. Yes. So yes. it's not like a dress like I would wear. Right. This is a dress that like Liza Minnelli Liza would, would wear like, on stage. That guy has a great wardrobe. Yes. That's what Liza would say. <laughs> All kinds of sparkles <laughs> and feathers and boas. Right. And this is, we're talking Liza Minnelli gear on stage, not plain Jane stuff like I would wear. No, he's, he's, he's a yeah. diva. Sam Brinton is a, a special breed. Yes. That maybe, I didn't even think about that, kleptomania. Maybe Sam Brinton can't control Because who's the other one? Winona Ryder, right? Winona mm-hmm. Ryder. And by the way, well, no, that, does, was, that was like a melt, like she had a, a, that was a break. Like a one, I and just one clear. Yeah, that was a one-time thing. How do, oh God, man, the pronouns. How does they define? I know. I how do they? It's he, okay. Go with he. Because I wasn't sure which. I just go with Sam. Well, they say that okay. he's non-binary, but. I just go with I Sam. Go That's with what I mean. If he's non-binary, then he I don't even do the pronoun. I just do the proper noun. Sam. Just Sam. Sam. How does Sam? Because I see him and I think, okay, well, he's he's keeping the mustache. Yes. So it's not like, you know. Like With bright red, like garish lipstick. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not like he's like saying, okay, I'm going to feminize myself to the degree no. that's possible. It's not bad. So let me come, let me refer to my pronoun as they. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah, even I don't know. The they, is, the, the they thing is always throws me I off. I just use the, the, the Sam exact. Is yeah. yeah. Just Sam. Just Sam. Be better, Sam. Like, stop Be stealing better, people's Sam. stuff, yo. That's like, dude, that's crazy. And don't wear those under, people's underwear to jail. Like, don't do that. That's, that's just, frowned upon. That is wacky to me. Like, hey, and, hey. Malik, Malik. Are those yours? Up, Malik brought up an excellent <laughs> point. This person has super high-level clearances. Yes. And, and they clearly have And a it's problem. not poor. It's They're not poor. They're not poor. Uh-uh. They clear, like, they have a problem. This person, Sam Brinton has a problem. When You're you- a klepto. <laughs> And you clearly have impulse control problems. I don't want you in charge of nuclear anything. Nuclear waste? Are you kidding? I wouldn't want you to control my dog's waste. Right. (laughs) Come on. Pull his clearances. Their clearances. Whatever. Sam's clearances. There's something clearly wrong here. If a guy this high profile walks into an airport and steals luggage twice, first time didn't even have luggage and took it. So he can't even say, oh, I just picked the wrong bag. You didn't have a bag. He didn't have a bag. And he lied about, or they lied about it. Yeah. And then this time, same thing. At the so they have a warrant out for his arrest. Now there's a warrant, federal warrant. So wow. I don't know if it's like, who, who executes that? U.S. Marshal? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so it's a federal. I don't know why. Is it federal because it happened at an airport? Yeah, because, you know, the yeah. airport is like its is own why? little thing. Mm-hmm. It's like its right. own little world or something to like that effect. FAA, TSA, yeah. that's so, all. Yeah, I guess the marshals. I don't think Sam's going to be hard to locate. We're going to see Sam fiercely running down the street in the heels <laughs> trying to get away from the cops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> six foot four, you know, like yeah. taller than JT. <laughs> right. ah, running in eight inch stilettos. Ah! <laughs> all right, we're making fun <laughs> of Sam. Um, but yeah. They deserve it. Don't steal. 
Sam, thieves? Cut it out. You know, in some countries, thieves get their hands chopped off. Chopped right off. You ain't gonna be stealing then. That's right. You're gonna have to find some way to look stylish with one arm. Get those fingers off that body. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Let's get the headlines. Funny story, Manila. Thank you for that. In the news, um, the U.S. House of Representatives on Thursday passed the new version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, as it's known, that provides $847.3 billion in discretionary defense and energy-related funding, including $10 billion in security aid for Taiwan and $800 million in security for, um, in aid for Ukraine. Huh, that number is getting lower and lower for Ukraine. House lawmakers passed the NDAA in a vote of 350 to 80, advancing the legislation to consider consideration by the Senate, who is slated to pass it before the end of the year. The bill requires a two-third majority to advance and receive both bipartisan support and opposition with 45 Democrats and 35 Republicans voting against it. The $847.3 billion discretionary funding top line for the fiscal year of 2023 included the NDAA does not account for $11 billion in national defense authorization outside the jurisdiction of the House Armed Services Committee. Congress is providing billions more than requested by Mm. President Joe Biden. We, man, can, man, that is just amazing. The president is like, I want this much. No, you need more, Mr. President. You need more. We didn't give you enough. Yeah, we didn't give you enough money for the military. Wow. Senior Republicans overseeing foreign affairs have demanded detailed information from the Government Accountability Office on Washington security aid to Kiev amid Russia's ongoing special military operation in Ukraine. In a letter to the GAO on Thursday, House Foreign Affairs Committee led by Republican Michael McCall and Senator Jim Reich ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Panel, wrote that they want information on how the United States administration is monitoring almost $14.9 billion in funds that were allocated for Ukraine and dispersed through the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, and the State Department. The lawmakers stressed the necessity of USAID and the Department of, Co- of State continuing, quote, to work with haste to use these funds to address the dire needs of the people of Ukraine, unquote. Okay. U.S. billionaire entrepreneur and newly minted Twitter owner Elon Musk said on Friday that the company had been working on a software update to let users know if they have been shadow banned. Good on him. Quote, Twitter is working on a software update that will show your true account status so you know clearly if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal, unquote, Musk said on Twitter. And like I said, if Twitter put in like a visibility flag, then all things being equal, it's a status that's associated with your account. You may have an account that's active with another flag on it that basically indicates that this account needs to be banned, shadow, or whatever. So depending upon how they basically set that system up, Elon Musk only needs to create a little widget where you can put in your name or your ID, and that ID shows this is the particular flag associated with the account. And this is on the heels of Barry Weiss basically getting the second tranche of Twitter files. And so, again, a lot of the, this tranche went into this notion of shadow banning and people who were basically eliminated despite the fact that there was no alert that they were being eliminated. And all intents and purposes, Twitter had basically made the point of saying, we don't do this. Well, lo and behold, they do. Let's keep going. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and Mark Takano delivered a letter to Twitter CEO Elon Musk urging him to address the purported rise in so-called hate speech on social media platform. The lawmakers allege that slurs against black people have tripled, slurs against women are up by a third, slurs against gay men are up 58%, and slurs against Jewish people are up 61%, citing data for the Center 
for countering digital hate. Quote, as members of Congress, we are deeply concerned about the recent rise in hate speech on Twitter. Analysis by independent researchers, I'll put that in quotes, indicated Twitter has become an increasingly toxic place for our constituents, and we are reaching out to you to understand the actions of Twitter is taking to combat the increase in harmful content. Unquote. The letter sent on Thursday said, full court press on must. How dare you not eliminate more stuff that we don't want to see? How dare you not do that? You need to get rid of that stuff. We don't want to see that stuff. I'm, okay, sure. Look. From the standpoint of transparency, at the very least, Elon Musk is putting this stuff out there. What was going on behind the scenes for those years that he wasn't necessarily there. I applaud him for that. I applaud him for that. I want to see more of those files. Let's keep going. Twitter is a main company. I know it's a social media company. It seems trivial and flimsy or whimsical, but it's not. It almost had the effect of altering or potentially altering a presidential election. Anything that has the potential to do something like that is no longer trivial to me. Let's keep going. Saudi Arabia and Chinese companies have signed 34 ingress investment agreements as part of China's or Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia. Saudi state media reported on Thursday. The signing ceremony took place on Wednesday. On Wednesday, the deals cover green energy, hydrogen production, uh, photovoltaic energy, information technologies and services, transport, logistics, medical industry and construction. The agreement reflects Saudi Arabia and China's intention to boost bilateral cooperation in all areas. Saudi Investment Minister Khalid bin Abdulaziz Al-Falil was cited as saying in the report. That last name is rough. Let's keep going. The drone used by Ukraine to attempt an attack on two Russian military airfields will modernize with the participation of a corporation from the United States. Konstantin Gorilov, the head of Russian delegation of military security and arms control talks in Vienna, said, quote, Firstly, during 2022, the Kharkov Aviation Plant carried out work to modernize the mentioned UAVs with the participation of specialists from the Kiev Design Bureau Lurch, or Lurch, no, Luch, and the United States Corporation Raytheon Technologies. The range of this drone is up to 1,000 kilometers. It is clear in which direction it was planned to be used, unquote. Gorilov told Sputnik on Thursday, commenting on the possible involvement of NATO countries in the attack. According to Gorilov, quote, it is well known that the overwhelming majority of targets targeted by neo-Nazis were determined by the Western masses of the Kiev regime, unquote. And look, I don't think it's coincidence at all that after Ukraine launched this particular attack, the United States leaked to the media that it altered the HIMARS missiles so they couldn't necessarily go long distance, basically saying we had nothing to do with this. Now, under normal circumstances, it was believed that any target that's selected by the HIMARS were at very least you were working with the West in order to do it. The West is basically saying we had nothing to do with this. Well, is it true? Is it true? Or was it putting out there just in order to kind of create, let's say, a left of space between what basically happened versus the activities that the people were in? Basically, plausible deniability. That, I gotta be honest, it's not all that plausible. Let's keep going. This day in history. In 1968, in quote, the mother of all demos, unquote, Douglas Engelbart demonstrates the computer system LLS to a live audience in San Francisco, shows for the first time the mouse were processing Windows, hypertext links, and video conferencing, real-time collaboration, and other modern computer concepts. 1968, wow. In 1990, Lesz Walesha wins Poland's first direct presidential election in Poland. In 1992, the United States Marines and Allied Nations launch an amphibious and airborne, airborne operation in Mogadishu, Somalia, to restore order on the war-torn nation. Authorized by the UN Security Council Resolution 794, passed on December the 3rd. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Abdul. 
All right, so let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with the one and only Mark Sloboda. Always love talking to this guy. And we're going to get into the Britney Griner release and other issues that are basically taking place around the world in a geopolitical standpoint. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan Abdul, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM at 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get to you. We may not be able to get to you today. We have a full show. <laughs> so so I, I'll point I it take out. That back. Yeah, I just looked at the calendar and was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, so if nothing else, we'll get to you on Monday. So don't feel bad. You're not going to be neglected. Yeah, I owe you. Um, so let's do this. Let's bring in our guest, Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. Mark, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Jamal Manila, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. It is always an honor and a pleasure to have you. And of course, the big story coming out today has to do with Brittany Griner being released. Um, she's been exchanged for Victor Boot. And this basically took place at the Abu Dhabi airport in the United Arab Emirates. And Biden's response to this is fascinating. Or let's say the U.S. response or the Western response. Um, Biden made the point of saying she was unjustly detained. She shouldn't have been there, basically. Needless trauma, um, wrongfully detained, totally illegitimate reasons. Mark, give me your point. <laughs> give me your take on basically the arrest in and of itself, but also the prisoner trade, meaning the exchange itself. Yeah, I mean, personally, I could care less about Greiner, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but I am glad that Victor Both, a Russian citizen unjustly seized by U.S. authorities in Thailand, he's been in U.S. captivity for 14 long years, was finally reunited with his wife uh, and family in Moscow today. He was originally arrested in 2008 in a sting operation set up by uh, U.S. security services where they set him up in, to uh, frame him for selling weapons to the uh, leftist FARC guerrillas uh, who were fighting the U.S.-backed right-wing dictatorship and its death squads in Colombia. But I guess Victor about kind of won in that regard because the newly elected president of Colombia is a former left-wing guerrilla. So I think Victor Bout gets the last gets the last laugh on that regard. But he's gotten out after having served only half of his 25-year sentence that uh, the U.S. government threw at him. His arrest and charging in the U.S. is another example of the U.S. You know, seizing uh, Russian nationals in third countries, uh, basically extending its um, jurisdiction to the entire world. Meng Wanzhou um, and, and Huawei. Yeah, it's a it's it's a big problem. Uh, and Julian Assange is 
perfect example of that and an Australian citizen being charged with with espia with with, with you know yeah, uh, right. being Espionage. a traitor basically in the US. Uh, so anyway, I think that this was a good trade for Russia. I mean, here on one hand we have a marijuana vape smoking basketball player and on the other hand we have the guy that the US media uh you know presented as the lord of war yeah i thought that was him okay it's the same person okay merchant of death yeah the merchant of death too yeah they literally made a movie Nicholas about Cage. him uh, enti- entirely fictionalized of course they had no very little relation to reality uh but yeah with nicholas cage so i mean and victor bout got presented by by nicholas cage i guess you know, that's not that's not too bad. <laughs> but the U.S. had a, a few months ago tried to present a two for one deal where they presented that they would exchange. Victor, they would give up Victor Bout and Russia would hand over uh, Griner um, and Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine who was caught for espionage uh, in Russia. And uh, Russia said, nope. You want two, it's a two for two. And so that didn't happen. Uh, but evidently facing, I believe, some kind of uh, domestic pressure, because I believe there was a lot of domestic pressure on Biden to get Griner back, considering he had previously met with her and done photo ops and everything before. Uh, he felt under some pressure uh, and it was a one for one deal. And uh, you, we get back the Lord of War for a basketball player and uh John Bolton has condemned the trade as a surrender of the U.S. And frankly, uh, anything that the walrus uh, hates, I like. Yeah. If John Bolton thinks it was bad, I think it's good. I think he's jealous of Victor Boot's mustache. Oh, that's a good point. Mustache wars. That's a good point. I think that... I, I think Victor about... I mean... Bolton does definitely have a fuzzier one, but I, 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 you know, I think I think Victor Bout's mustache is a little more suave. Yeah, bo- oh, both are powerful combs. mustaches. Yeah, both are very powerful. But yeah. they both wear, yes, they do yeah. both rock very strong, masculine mustaches. Stash. Yes, yeah. 70s stash, <laughs> right. for sure. Well, now on that note, I don't know how well Victor Boot was able to care for the stash while he was locked away in a, a U.S. hellhole of a prison because there were... Um, claims from his family that, you know, where he's had um, like like tooth infections that weren't tended to, uh, other ailments like stomach issues. Uh, his skin apparently was like infested with fungus and, and that, that the U.S. prison officials basically did not provide care to him and basically let him suffer. And I don't think any of that happened to Brittany Griner. Go figure. I mean, thought that, you know, U.S. prison system was like... Uh visiting uh disney world i mean <laughs> that's how they act they're like britney griner is locked away in a, a, a penal russian colony. penal yeah. colony and blah 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 and and then we act like victor boot was what he was at camp cupcake like martha <laughs> like martha stewart like what like what is what are they trying to present here as if we treated victor boot well I, you know, have heard enough stories about the U.S. prison system. My father was actually a prison warden in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I, I know a few horror stories about what happens in U.S. prisons. And I, I just hope that Victor Bout escaped 
is 14 years in, in captivity without... Um, Nothing permanent, probably, like a permanent health issue, because yeah, there's so I, much of that. I, I don't know if you guys are... Uh, were paying attention, but uh, this guy, this Substack journalist, in, uh, Substack journalist Jonathan Jordan Shashtal, Shashtal. I can't. I'm pronouncing his name all wrong. But yesterday he um, released some tweets about NBC reporting. So according to him, and he and he has the screenshots. According to what he posted on yesterday, um, the initial reporting from NBC News was that Russia had offered both Griner and Waylon. They changed the story to then say that Russia only offered Griner in exchange. And he has it. I mean, you can go, his name is, I can't even pronounce his last yeah. name, but he literally, and he like pulls the quotes from the original NBC report to the subsequent NBC report. But what, but what it pushes the notion is, is that Russia offered Waylon. I see. Yeah, and I, and in fact, I that sounds like NBC was being extremely lazy and rehashing something they had prepared months ago mm. for the deal that the U.S. was trying for and didn't bother to do proper correction of it. Mm. And Mark, just to make clear, though, Russia had wanted to create some kind of policy with the U.S. to exchange prisoners in general, correct? I mean, the U.S. had basically been denying this for years. Yeah, the U.S. is, I mean, the U.S. did not want to let uh, Victor Butko. I mean, that much was clear. And um, the U.S., you know, continues to maintain that every Russian that they seize around the world is, of course, a, a dastardly criminal. And everyone, every American who is arrested in Russia is all completely guiltless and did nothing. And they're all unjustly maintained, detained, you know, and then it, it's you know, pretty, pretty standard propaganda line. Uh, but Russia has proposed more general policies where, you know, hey, if you stop pursuing our citizens, we'll stop pursuing yours and we can do this, you know, more on a, a more friendly basis. But uh, the U.S. has rejected that, of course, because, you know, they have moral superiority, according to them. You know what? So the interesting thing about this is that and, you know, there's a lot of people saying we were mentioning Paul Whelan, and I'm sure a bit of that has to do with the fact that he's a Marine. but. As I was telling people, I've been saying the more, the better parallel, because they're making a comparison between the two, but it ignores Mark Fogel. Right. Who is Mark Fogel? Mark Fogel is a guy, it's, he's from Pennsylvania. He was working over in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Um, he was caught in the Russian airport with marijuana. He ended up having a little over a half of, half of an ounce, so maybe about 17 grams of marijuana. He's still there. Now, that's more comparable to Brittany Griner than Waylon. But no one talks about Mark Fogel at all. And I believe that Fogel was, and in his case, he says, and I think that's what his lawyers were saying, that he had medical marijuana, and apparently they pre presented evidence. Oh, it's, it's, it's medical marijuana. Yeah, but, but, but as far as his is that, team is, is that concerned. like California medical marijuana? <laughs> yes. I mean... But if, uh, obviously, it's not legal in Russia, oh, so right, right. that that definitely is a crime. But it's a better case to make not Waylon an apple Griner, to apple, yeah. but uh, an apples to apples comparison would actually be Brittany Griner in Waylon. And so I do wonder what is the effort to get Waylon because he's fourteen guy from to get Pennsylvania. Or to get Fogel. 
Get Fogel. I'm sorry, Get Fogel. Get Fogel, right, because he's a, a nobody Joe Schmo. He's 60 yeah, years old, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Right, he's an older man. Teacher from Pennsylvania. Yeah, he's a Joe Schmo. They're not But no one work. talks about yeah. Wago. And yeah, I'm, I'm also a, a former teacher from Pennsylvania, but I, I wasn't trying to, to have medical marijuana through my, my baggage in, in, in Moscow. Thank God. Well, you know, one of the things I also heard allegedly is that Saudi Arabian Crown Prince uh, MBS got involved in this negotiation. Really? For, yeah, to, for Briner and Boot. Have you heard anything about that, Mark? I have not. I know that the deal actually took place on an airport tarmac in Abu Dhabi, but I had not heard that Victor Boot that that MBS was that would that would make it all the more interesting because you know I mean what 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 more do you need to add to this saga saga other than some bone saws? Right. right? This is right. Just, this is so crazy. This is just the most bizarre story. And then when you read like the of course, I'm reading the Western media reporting about who Victor Boot is and how he got in trouble. I'm reading the Western reports because that's really all I could find because, you know, Google scrubs everything else. Yeah. Um, but I'm reading it through a different lens, obviously, right? And part of, because I've done so many stories over the past decades about the the FBI and the CIA and U.S. Marshals, DEA, all that, um, they, some of the the very glaring, obvious things to me that I saw that that they basically, like you said, it was uh, entrapment, basically. Um, and they set, set up this whole thing with fake FARC in Bangkok, in a Bangkok, a glitzy Bangkok hotel. But they needed to make sure, and this is a common thing for the three-letter agencies, is if you're trying to get this guy for like international whatever, okay, you need to make it applicable to America. So one of the things that they needed Victor Boot to say in order to say, okay, now get him, grab him, grab him, is that he said, when being asked by these fake FARC, if these arms could potentially kill Americans. And his answer was probably like, well, I mean, they're arms. They can kill anybody. I suppose it can kill Americans if you're aiming at Americans. And that was it. That was when they dropped the axe and they're like, that's it. He said, kill Americans. Go get them. Yeah. So, I mean, posing as FARC members, they said, uh, you know, we could we could use these to kill U.S. officials. And and uh, according to U.S. officials, we, we, we might hear different from Victor Bout now that he's actually free. But uh, according to what they arrested him on, he said, your enemies are my enemy. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I find it real, you know, rather ironic that the the government that's that sells more arms around the world than anyone else the biggest arms dealer in the yes. world uh, arrested victor bout for arresting arms because of course he was giving arms to the wrong side you know not, not you know the side that the leftists that were against the the, the right-wing uh, dictatorship that the u.s was supporting in colombia so well, those are on the books mark i mean the U.S. sells and, and makes money for Raytheon and Boeing and all of that. I mean, those are on the books. And, you know, those companies pay a little bit in taxes because of all the tax loopholes. So Victor Boot, I don't think, was paying taxes. So I think really that's what they wanted to get him for. Tax evasion. Tax evasion. I think so. <laughs> Mark, I want to transition slightly into what's taking place on the ground. Backboot is becoming a huge, um, well, not becoming. It has been a battleground for a while now. And it seems that Russia is making gains. But correct me if I'm wrong on this. Some of the reports that I was reading, especially with the casualty numbers, were astonishingly high. I mean, 
over the course of what, uh, nine months, Ukrainians were losing roughly 10,000 a month, give or take. And this is based on um, Angela von der Leyen, basically making a point of saying 100,000. Ursula. Ursula von der Leyen, thank you. That 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have basically been killed. Well, in back mood, some of the reporting is coming out saying this number is even worse. I mean, where you're getting like a battalion-sized number of people dying or injured over the course of a day. Like saying yeah, that they're losing yeah. hundreds and hundreds of people per day. That uh, appalling numbers. Give me your take on this. What's taking place? Yeah, we've heard from Western officials, Western officials, that the uh, Kiev regime forces are suffering up to a thousand casualties a day just in Bakhmut. I mean, that's just just in Bakhmut, which is is hellacious. Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're talking a, a, a brigade level, you know, um, it, 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 the a scale of, of uh, carnage there. I mean, I, I've heard uh, General Wesley Clark actually spoke about this uh, and how advantageous a position this is to Russia and that this is exactly what they want. And I actually uh, spoke to that myself just uh, days before that Russia is grinding through Bakhmut. Um, it's, it's made some recent uh, pretty... Uh, breakthrough advances uh, to the south and and now to the north of Bakhmut, and it's surrounding it, and it has put uh, all of the supply roads under Bakhmut. They are now under fire control, which means that that Russia can target those supply roads with its artillery, uh, which is of of course not not good for the uh, Kiev regime forces stuck in the city. But I mean, for months now, the Kiev regime has just emptied reinforcements after reinforcements after reinforcements into Bakhmut to try to hold it. And they've just been ground down and ground down and ground down. And uh, we've heard from Alexei Erostovich that the artillery advantage there in what everyone agrees is an artillery war is 12 to 1 on the Russian side. So this, this I mean, it's, it's a pretty awful to talk about, to be frank, but this kind of meat grinder... That that Zelensky keeps sending his his conscripts in as cannon fodder. It's it's a good. I mean, in a in a in a purely cold blooded assessment, it's good from a Russian point of view because if you're achieving a very high kill ratio, right, and and they keep sending forces into that, that's a good situation for Russian armed forces, because it means that you're taking out, you're demilitarizing, if you will, a lot of the Kiev regime uh, military at very low cost to yourself. And General Wesley Clark uh, on uh, US TV spoke to exactly that. And General Wesley Clark is no friend to Russia, believe me. And he was lamenting the, this, this meat grinder situation uh, in back. But it certainly doesn't look good for the Kiev regime forces. Correct there. me if I'm wrong. He called it a firebag, right? That basically Ukraine is in a position where this position needs to be defended at all costs, which means that if you can continuously attack it, then they have to keep sending men into it, which are basically getting those men killed off. I mean, the logic to it, though, doesn't entirely make sense. I mean, all things being equal, if you keep getting your men killed at some point, you're going to run out of men. The city is important in that it is the centerpiece of the second to last defensive line of fortifications uh, in the Donbass. It has more strategic value. I mean, and it does have some logistical uh, importance, the railroads running through that. But it has achieved supreme importance 
One, because of the amount of reinforcements that have already been wasted there, the amount of lives that have already been spent. But the Kiev regime is now trying to say that the city is, oh, it's not important. Right? It has very little strategic value. Then why have you wasted tens of thousands of lives trying <laughs> right. to defend the city? And ultimately, as with so much with the Kiev regime, everything revolves around uh, the politics, the PR the, the, the perception. And they have sacrificed Zelensky, you know, the, the Vogue time cover model has sacrificed so many of his own troops in an unwinnable situation, uh, simply because he, he simply can't take the political damage of, of losing this city. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us on this one. That's, look, that's a deplorable number, right? I mean, if that's, because we're not even talking about the entirety of the war zone. We're just talking about Bakhmut by itself. Just Bakhmut. Is it fair to say that the reserves that are coming into the battlefield is making the difference on the ground in Bakhmut? Most of them are still not in, but some of them are definitely starting to filter in. But I think at this point, it's not just the, the Russian uh, troop uh, you know, reinforcement presence, but it's simple that, that the Kiev you know, has ground down so many of their forces at this point that they're actually, you know, they said they had a million man army. Well, it's been ground down pretty substantially and they're short of forces and they're short of artillery shells, all these Western supplies. The West is running out of supplies for them. Uh, and it's increasingly hard to get them logistically all the way across Ukraine when Russia is taking out their military logistics, the electric powered trains by taking out the electrical strike. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad situation for supply, for manpower. Basically, I think the Kiev regime's counteroffensive have, have well passed their high mark. And basically everywhere where they are supposed to be still doing offenses, uh, Russia is now on the counteroffensive. Uh, that's in the Kremenaya area, in the north of Lugansk, in the Lamont area, everywhere as well. Uh, so I, I think that we can talk about the tide turning at this point. One last question before we go. Um, Angela Merkel. Recently, Angela Merkel made a statement basically oh. saying, <laughs> I had to go here, that basically, oh, I tricked Putin. Um, I just entered into the Minsk agreements because I wanted to give Ukraine time to prepare itself for war. And mind you, this mirrors Petro Poroshenko, who's basically said the same thing. We went on to the Minsk agreements, not because we believed in these agreements. We had no um, intention of fulfilling these agreements. We just did so in order to prepare militarily before we got into a conflict with Russia. Give me your take to on build this. Up a big, yeah, to build up a big proxy army. The, I mean, do you believe her? You know, long been suspected. Oh, yeah, of course I believe okay. her. I thought that that was what they were doing back in 2014, 2015, which is why I was against the Minsk Accords at the time and thought Russia should have intervened at the time. But Putin decided to give peace a chance. And, you know, that we see the end result of this and, and Petro Poroshenko and Angela Merkel were laughing all the way, you know, to to the to their Azov, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, equipped army there. Uh, but what this guarantees is that there will be no quick end to this conflict. There will be no quick diplomatic solution because Russia cannot. Had, there's no partner that Russia can deal with in good faith on the other side. 
Yeah, they basically destroyed all credibility for any sort of negotiation that could come about. Yeah, I mean, and before that, there was the January 21st agreement back in 2014, the power sharing agreement uh, that the EU brokered that was also walked all over in this conflict. So uh, deal after deal has 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 seen Russia being played, Putin being played for a sucker again and again. And I don't think that he will be fooled another time like this. Well, yeah, he said it was a mistake. He, he said it himself when he was talking to wives, um, mothers of the soldiers. Mark, thank you for this, man. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and definitely check out his new YouTube channel at Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. You can also find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Jamal Thomas, Melilla Shan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are going to move to Peru. This is a fascinating story that's taken place where the president, at this point, has been deposed, basically ousted. Um, let's go to Camilla. It's a fascinating story. We've been watching this and we've been paying attention to this particular story and it's just escalated over the last couple of days. So Camilla Escalante, she's a journalist and correspondent reporting from Latin America. Camilla, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm in Sao Paulo and of course it's match day for us here in Brazil. So that's, you know, where my mind and heart is, of course. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, let me, let's get into Peru for a bit. And I'll just read the top headline. Peru's Congress swore in a new president on Wednesday in a day of sweeping political drama that saw the former leader, Pedro Castillo, um, ousted Castillo, Castillo, right? Okay, Castillo, Castillo um, ousted in an impeachment trial hours after he attempted a last-ditch bid to stay in power by trying to dissolve Congress. And, of course, he was trying to shut down Congress basically by decree. There were 101 votes in favor of removing him, six votes against, and 10 in absentia. What is going on in Peru? This is political drama on a whole nother level. Okay, so, you know, the so the president, uh, former president up until two days ago, came out and he gave this announcement on national television. He said there would be a temporary dissolution of the Congress. He established a new emergency uh, government. He said that uh, they would be uh, reorganizing some of the major key uh, judicial institutions. And he said that, uh, the, the, you know, police would be, uh, you know, going around and ensuring there's law and order um, and that there would be a curfew at 10 p.m. every night for a certain uh, duration of time. Obviously, that didn't go on. That didn't, you know, go over very well. He was doing this in order to avoid a legislative coup and a vote that was going to take place in order to oust him from the presidency. And so he just uh, sometime after that, probably just minutes after that, he was leaving the presidential palace and he was picked up by the national police and taken to a police station where he's been detained since. Um, just hours after that, at 3 p.m. that day, they swore in the vice president to the presidency. And it's important to say that both of these people, Pedro Castillo and his vice president, who is now the president, are no longer members of the Peru Libre Party, which they were voted into power um, on that slate. 
uh, representing uh, a broad range of leftists and campesinos and uh, working class movements of the country. And both of them have been called traitors and total letdowns by the people. Um, but, you know, this is a situation where people are a lot of people actually supported uh, what he was calling for, which was the dissolution of the Congress, because they say that Peru has been living under a parliamentary dictatorship in which the parliament has very low, the members of Congress themselves have very low legitimacy in terms of their approval rating, and that they have been governing from the legislative branch and for that reason, it's been impossible to govern, whether from the right, for the most part, or for the left. And this is a country that's had like six presidents in just a few years. And so a lot of people have actually gone out into the streets of Lima, specifically before the Congress, uh, to protest against what they consider to be a coup against their president, uh, Pedro Castillo. Because Pedro Castillo, of course, was voted in by millions of Peruvians and the elections uh, just about a year and a half ago. And he actually, uh, you know, received more than 50% of the vote. And so, you know, although a lot of people feel betrayed and he left the party and he broke a lot of alliances, you know, he had a lot of issues and was being, uh, you know, swayed by the right, misled. And he wasn't really governing on behalf of the people per se and implementing the the program that he had ran on during his campaign, he was the legitimately elected leader and not, um, you know, not this vice president um, and not anyone else. And so these protests are continuing right now. Today, there's many uh, protests that are uh, planned for the day. People are, uh, they're calling for new general elections. And this is happening in several cities across the country. And they're also calling for a People's Constituent Assembly and there are groups from communities in rural areas and towns who are traveling to Lima to protest outside the Congress. And of course, these are protests against the Congress. Meanwhile, the media um, is not really reporting on what's going on. They're not reporting, they're ignoring some of these protests and they're ignoring the calls for an election. Wow. So what is gonna happen with him? I mean, it, the last I read, he was detained. Um, what's the expectation that's gonna happen to Right. Well, during yesterday's morning press conference in Mexico City, President AMLO confirmed that Castillo did, in fact, request asylum and that he was arrested before he would be able to get to the embassy of Mexico. So uh, the foreign minister of Mexico, Marcelo Ebrard, uh, announced yesterday that the ambassador had been sent, the Mexican ambassador there in Lima had been sent to the police station where uh, Castillo is being held, where Castillo reiterated his request for asylum. And, uh, you know, those calls are being made internationally by leaders like Evo Morales and, um, and, and several others uh, in order to protect the life of Castillo and his family. They say that, you know, essentially he's being, he was being, you know, used as a puppet, strung along. We see him shaking hands with Luis Almagro, the secretary general of the OAS. There's a huge chance that, you know, he was put in this situation out of naivety, obviously, but because he was allying himself with the wrong people who were giving him very bad advice, to say the least. And now he feels as if his life is in danger, uh, that his safety is in danger. He's reportedly afraid to eat in the jail, afraid of being poisoned. And so, 
they're going to continue to seek to get him out of there because, you know, if this was really about him, you know, committing this or that crime or whatever, I mean, he still has the right to safety. So those are what the calls are internationally. And we've heard, you know, the same sort of thing being uh, echoed by uh, President Nicolas Maduro last night, as well as uh, Cuban President Diaz-Canal. Camila, did the United Nations, uh, I believe it was last month or a couple of months ago, um, had reported that Peru has the highest level of food insecurity in South America. And we're seeing across the country now with the uh, military operation in Ukraine, the energy crisis that's happening all all around the world. Are you seeing in Peru specifically, and especially because you mentioned the instability? Yes, you're right. I think five or six presidents since 2016. are you seeing these type of maybe economic-related protests in Peru? Is that part of the sentiment on the ground that people are responding to? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very diff- difficult economic situation. People all across the board, all sorts of people work more than eight-hour days. They go in the morning to work, and they don't know what hour they're going to come uh, you know, back home, there's issues with instability in terms of crime. People are afraid to be walking in the streets at night, particularly in Lima. Um, and if you, you know, if you have a job, you're very fortunate to do so. But there's a lot of, you know, social and economic exclusion. There's issues with the justice system in terms of like labor laws, issues with health, education, inequality, and just generally issues related to the legacy of colonialism and environmental issues and the drug trade uh, persists, as well as corruption. These are all things that the on the Peru Libre uh, campaign, you know, a lot of the other members who were campaigning on behalf of Castillo said that they would uh, that they would be combating and they would be trying to change uh, during his mandate. And absolutely none of that happened. So um, it is a very difficult situation and people are, you know, tired of their governors. People, you know, have these sorts of sayings like they want all of them gone. They want some of them, you know, wanted Castillo gone. They want the vice president gone, who's now president and the Congress. And that's why they're calling for the Constituent Assembly in order to write a new constitution and for new elections. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Camila, because it seems that of all um, democracies, especially in in the Western Hemisphere, it seems that Peru has the, the most lax uh, rules around ousting your president. And that's why they've been through so many. And I find it kind of kind of unique as just a as a footnote that president or ex-president Castillo is being held at the same detention center as former President Alberto Fujimori. That's kind of odd to me because he was he was ousted in, what, 2018, 19, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, this is a bit of an extension. Well, it's an issue with obviously total lack of legitimacy of the institutions and, you know, having weak institutions in general. But it's an extension of lawfare as well that we're seeing being waged um, across leaders or against leaders across the region. I mean, in the same way, you know, the United States tried to overthrow the legitimate democratically elected government of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela using the legislature, using the National Assembly, which actually expired. They 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 literally had a mandate and they tried to continue governing after their mandate was open. 
or was over because it was controlled by the right wing. I mean, this is the sort of thing that the United States, that Washington really likes. They like that these weak institutions exist um, so that they can go in and uh, totally wreak havoc uh, and destabilize the country because there's no strong, in this case, executive. Um, so I've yet to see what the update is on his condition today, but it is strange that he's uh, just being held there. Uh, but, you know, they're trying to sentence him to a very long, decades-long sentence currently. I mean, they were trying to say he was running a criminal organization for profit of state contracts and for obstructing investigations. I mean, that's kind of like what they're doing to Cristina uh, Fernandez de Kirchner. Yes. In Argentina. Yeah. Basically trying to use, like you said, lawfare. Uh, this person is corrupt. Uh, um, what's his name? Um, not Evo. Uh, the one in Brazil. Uh, Lula. With Same Lula. thing, right? Yeah. Same and, thing. and any thoughts on the on Argentina while we're at it? I mean, you know, as far as uh, Pedro Castillo being corrupt, you know, the, the the reflection that a lot of Peruvians are making right now, but that they've been saying since basically his first steps in office, are that he came from such humble roots. Um, he came from, you know, a rural area. He was a teacher's union leader, and um, he himself was a teacher, and he's no politician. He had no background in politics, which is a very specific uh a very specific job, occupation. And so he had no idea what he was doing. He was also not originally from the ranks of the Peru Libre Party. And so people are saying that, you know, that one of the lessons learned is that they needed to take someone who was, you know, really a militant of this political movement, political party that is very aware of the ideology and the principles and able to, uh, you know, steer uh, you know, politics from whatever position in the correct way. And because of this, because he was just such a simple man, uh, but not, you know, a political leader in the way Evo Morales, for example, was for so many years before he came to the presidency, that he was able to just be, you know, swindled um, and everything else. And so, you know, as far as Cristina Fernandez, um, there will be other instances uh, she has been sentenced to six years in prison, uh, and she's supposed to have a lifetime ban on running for political office, which people say uh, people say that this is an effort to try to kill her, literally, because she just suffered an assassination attempt a couple months ago, or kill her politically by, by making her completely unable, disqualified to ever run for political office again. But there are other instances in which they'll be challenging this case, uh, the Supreme Court, and even international instances. So it's not certain that she'll be uh, turning herself in for prison. Wow. That is, wow. Could she seek so asylum drama. somewhere? She will not. She could, but I don't think she will. I mean, this is, you know, there, there's this is something that I always ask myself is, you know, why don't they go deal with it on, on the exterior? But the case of Rafael Correa is a perfect case to show that it's a very could be a very negative idea because they were able to charge him with so many different things. They tried to land a bunch of Interpol red uh, notices on him to get him arrested from where he is in, in Brussels, Belgium. There he's a university professor, among other things. He's also an economist. And um, his wife lives there, so they went there. But since he went there, he was persecuted by the Lenin-Moreno government. And now he's unable to, to go back to his country, Ecuador. Now he's unable to run for political office once again, even though he's still the most uh, famous and beloved 
uh, political figure that could possibly run again in the future as president. They're also, you know, they also passed another law that said you can't be president again, all sorts of other things while he was gone. So it's a huge mistake because since he left the country in 2017, now it's 2022, and he's not been able to return if he does, he'll immediately get arrested in prison. And like we've seen, they did that to his vice president, who was also the vice president of Lenin Moreno, Jorge Glass, who just was released from prison a couple weeks ago after being a political prisoner for the last five years. So it's very difficult to leave the country because if you do, you risk not being able to come back under the system of lawfare. And if you stay in the country, you could get imprisoned, um, you know, the way in which Lula has, um, the way in which Jorge Glass was. And so, but I think Christina will stay firm and just try to fight it from there. And just to be clear, Rafael Correa is the one that gave um, Julian Assange asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. And they put all powers exactly. to go after him after he did that. Thank you for joining us. We've run to the, ed, um, the end of the break. Hour, yeah. But Camilla Escalante is a journalist and correspondent reporting from Latin America. And a great one at that. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back for the last hour of Fault Lines this week. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to the, I'm sorry, welcome to your, I, doing two things at once and it ended up not doing either one of those things well. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. Um, In this corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. And totally understanding where Jamal is coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. You can read. Oh man, you can't do both. If you try to read and recite a script, yeah, at the same time, it it clashes. (laughs) I mean, everything everything dropped out of my mind at the exact same time. It was like, and then it wouldn't even pick up. Like, where I couldn't, like, the next word. Because your mind can't, if you think about it, it's hard for the mind to process. You're you're reciting, it's like being an actor. You're reciting a script, and then you're reading something totally different. You're doing two different things at once. It's it's not connected. Well, no, no, it can be, because I'm proof of that, and other anchors Uh are proof of that. TV anchors, I'm referring to. Yeah. Because I usually have to to fight with the teleprompter in front of me. Mm Mm-hmm the guest that's in my ear, and then also the voice of either a producer or engineer, or an yeah. engineer or the director also in my ear talking over my guest <laughs> that I'm trying to process and still stick to the script. And it's live. Yeah. And, and it's, it's live. all live. So your brain, once you're conditioned for it, yeah. you, it can be done. Yeah. I'm just saying. It, but it requires a lot of conditioning. That's why I'm, you know, it, it, it kills me. When I see these young reporters, like you see on CNN, they just get thrown up to, yeah. to anchor and they just fail miserably. Because I know what's happening yeah. behind the scenes. I know what's happening in their ear. You, it's like they're chattering away. You can't, yeah. you can't do that without slowly building up your career to become the anchor because you have to, literally, it requires training. Yeah, you have like to use your, it. Your brain needs to train and understand how to process these different um, inputs yeah. that are I'm happening. okay with talking in my ear. I think the issue is I'm reading yeah. something at the exact same time where I'm reciting it and everything just 
Yeah. Right away. But it can be done. You can yeah. do it once you, if you practice, if you, I don't know how you would practice, but you, you practice. But it don't can be done. Don't practice, Jamal. <laughs> right. Don't, don't practice. <laughs> right. If you practice at home. Yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, we're just going to keep doing it until we get it right. No, we're not. Like, I could be in the middle of asking the guest a question, reading it from the teleprompter. And even, I mean, I wrote it earlier, so it's in the yeah. teleprompter. So I'm, I'm, I could be reading it to the guest. Then I'll have a producer yelling at me in my ear <laughs> and the guest trying to respond and me, try, you know, still trying to carry through with the question yeah. and sticking to the script while processing what the guest said so you can punch back. Yeah, so you can go immediately so back it at it. So it can be done. It just literally requires years and years, like decade worth before you become, you know, able to process. Your brain can be taught. Your brain can be taught anything. Oh, I don't doubt that your brain can be taught it. It's just that's okay. on we the don't fly. Have to, we don't have to practice. Yeah, yeah. That's not, <laughs> that's not something we need to overly do. I mean, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. This was one of but those where everything vanished. Yeah, yeah, if you everything have, that's vanished. something you want to. And for me, that was applicable to my career, obviously. Yeah, you so, needed. Right. so I needed to. Uh, but let's head over to the news. Speaking of anchoring the news, um, the main story, big story in America. Convicted drug trafficker, Brittany Griner. Oh, she's also a basketball player. Uh, <laughs> traded for a Russian pilot, Victor Boot. But of course, the headlines here would say uh, wrongfully convicted basketball star, <laughs> Brittany Griner, traded for the merchant of death, the lord of war, <laughs> Victor Boot. So it depends, right? Whichever way you're looking at that, that's the big breaking story. Brittany Griner will be home for the holidays. Uh, whatever you think of her, I, to us, I guess everyone here in this room, maybe it's because it's a very American thing. We're not like, oh, it's weed. Yeah. But at the same time, you're in a different country. Not the same rules apply. No American exceptionalism there. It's a, you know, yeah. zero tolerance policy. Uh, and the other story that I'm I'm choosing to break is Sam Britton, kleptomaniac, uh, Biden administration official, caught red-handed again. Well, not caught because caught on video. Stealing more luxury suitcases from the airport in Las Vegas. So sad. <laughs> Sam Brinton, they're the they, they, them. Uh, what are they? The uh, nuclear waste specialist, MIT graduate. There is a federal warrant for Sam Brinton's arrest. Um, so will they actually arrest Sam? That's super embarrassing, man. Don't know. That is super embarrassing. You're stealing luggage. Luxury. Luxury luggage at that. Right, like the high end, like someone's Louis Vuitton luggage or whatever. Uh, but yeah, Sam Brinton with those high level clearances, apparently a kleptomaniac, wow. can't control themselves. <laughs> wow. And those high heeled shoes. And, yes. Well, you know, it's going to be hard to run away from the popo. Yes, it is. It's a bag. Inch stilettos yeah. that are carrying <laughs> all the luggage. Ah! Looking 6'8. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's not like he's. Nearly invisible, or he's like a tiny, tiny person. That's not it. No. That's not it. Sam Brendan is a very, very identifiable large. person. Yes, very large. So, I don't know. Maybe the U.S. Marshal will go nab uh, Sam Brendan at, I don't know, Saks Fifth Avenue or something, <laughs> trying to steal stuff there. Who knows? Uh, but probably not finding them at their office here in Washington, D.C. It sounds like this person's always traveling. He's on the lam at this point. Maybe. They're on the lam. I don't know. Like, I don't know what they do yeah. for a federal warrant. But it sounds to me like that's a U.S. Marshal thing. Yeah. And they go get yeah, you. They get you. I guess. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, they'll be kicking in Sam's door. Ah! <laughs> I don't know. So those are the two big breaking stories. Uh, then we'll go over to some domestic news. 
U.S. House of Representatives on Thursday passed a new version of the 2023 NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act that provides $847.3 billion in discretionary defense and energy-related funding, including $10 billion in security aid for Taiwan and $800 million for Ukraine. Now, House lawmakers passed the NDAA in a vote of 350 to 80, advancing that legislation to consideration for by the Senate, who is slated to pass it before the end of the year. That bill would require two-thirds majority to advance to Biden's desk. Uh, looks like with 45 Democrats, 35 Republicans uh, expected to vote or are voting against it. Then... $847.3 billion discretionary funding top line fiscal year 2023 included in the NDAA does not account for $11 billion in national defense authorizations outside the jurisdiction of the House Armed Services Committee. So Congress is providing billions more than requested by President Biden. So they didn't ask for that much, but Congress was like, you know what, let's just, just put a little extra on there. Just give you a little tip, extra tip. You did so good there. And then senior Republicans overseeing foreign affairs have demanded detailed information from the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, on Washington's security aid to Kiev amid Russia's ongoing special military operation. Now, in that letter to the GAO Thursday, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, the lead Republican Michael McCall and Senator Jim Reich ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Panel, wrote that they want information on how the U.S. administration is monitoring $14.9 billion in funds that were allocated for Ukraine and dispersed through, guess who? USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the U.S. State Department. So I don't know, maybe Anthony Blinken has some talking to do. Uh, the lawmakers stress that the necessity of the USAID and State Department continue to, quote, work with haste to use these funds to address the dire needs of the Ukrainian people. So it's not that they're saying we want to pull back the reins on the funding. We just want to make sure you hurry up and use it for Ukraine. <laughs> so, so there's that. U.S. billionaire entrepreneur, newly minted owner of, you know, I would say it's it's Secondhand. Twitter is secondhand. He bought Twitter secondhand. No, Elon Musk. Yeah. Jack Dorsey was the was first, first owner. Yeah. yeah that's so, what I mean. so Elon Musk bought Twitter secondhand. Twitter, Twitter is second. It, it's like buying a used car. It's going to come with problems, right? Uh, he said on Friday, Elon, that is, that the company had been working on a software update to let users know if they have been shadow banned. Yes, Elon, I'm waiting for that one. Quote, Twitter is working on a software update that will show your true account status so you know clearly if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal. Uh, so as we know, the second tranche of uh, the Twitter files released by Ms. Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times. Uh, so she's going through, she and her team are going through all of these documents that were, as we now know, uh, were apparently being vetted originally by Jim Baker, the former FBI uh, general counsel, before it even got to her. So there's no telling exactly what Barry Weiss was actually able to see, considering um, 
the, the source material was filtered through Jim Baker first before he got fired. So uh, that stuff will continue to slowly drip. Then Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and Mark Takano, also Democrat, delivered a letter to Twitter CEO Elon Musk urging him to address the purported rise in so-called hate speech on Twitter. The lawmakers allege that slurs against black people have tripled. Slurs against women are up by a third. Slurs against gay men up by 58%. And slurs against Jewish people are up 61%, citing data from the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Quote, as members of Congress, we are deeply concerned about the recent rise in hate speech on Twitter analysis by independent researchers. Independent, I'm going to put air quotes on that. Independent researchers indicates Twitter has become an increasingly toxic place for our constituents, and we are reaching out to you to understand the actions Twitter is taking to combat this increase in harmful content, says the letter. I think your constituents care more about health care and uh, wages more than they care about Twitter. Just saying. Adam Schiff, uh, where I went to college, he was the, the congressman for that area, which is in Burbank, California. A um, lot of affluence there. Um, but, you know, that's what people care about. Yeah. Twitter. Twitter less. Yes, Adam Schiff. That's what we cared about when we were in college, paying exorbitant fees to go to school, uh, used books that were not available because the school uses books that the professors write and change like one paragraph in so every year you can't buy the used book because then you'll be missing right right? so you have to buy the brand new book all the time yes Adam Schiff that's exactly what we care about Twitter and international news Saudi and Chinese companies have signed 34 investment agreements as part of the Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia according to Saudi state media the signing ceremony took place on Wednesday those deals cover green energy hydrogen production photovoltaic energy, information technologies and services, transport, logistics, medical industry, and construction. The agreements reflect Saudi Arabia and China's intention to boost bilateral cooperation in all areas, according to Saudi Investment Minister Khalid bin Abdul Aziz Al-Faleh, as was cited in saying in this report. Then the drones used by Ukraine to attempt to attack Uh, Two Russian military airfields was apparently modernized with the participation of a corporation from the United States. No surprise there. Konstantin Gavrilov, the head of the Russian delegation at the military security and arms control talks in Vienna, said, quote, Firstly, during 2022, the Kharkov aviation plant carried out work to modernize the mentioned UAVs with the participation of specialists from the Kiev Design Bureau Luch and U.S. corporation Raytheon Technologies. The range of this drone is up to a thousand kilometers. It is clear in which direction it was planned to be used. Gavrilov talking to Sputnik on Thursday, commenting on the possible involvement of NATO countries in the attack. So according to him, quote, it is well known that the overwhelming majority of targets targeted by neo-Nazis are determined by the Western masters of the Kiev regime. Ouch. Now, this day in history, back in 1968, the so-called mother of all demos, Douglas Engelbart, 
demonstrates the computer system, NLS or online system, to a live audience in San Francisco. It shows for the first time the mouse, word processing, windows, hypertext links, and video conferencing, real-time collaboration, and other modern computing concepts. So remember, in 1968, these were all concepts. So here we are now doing all of that, you know, from a little thing that fits in our pocket. Crazy. Then in 1990, Lech Walesa wins Poland's first direct presidential election in Poland. So remember, former Soviet state, that was their first time electing uh, a president. That was Lech Walesa today in 1990, not that long ago. And in 1992, U.S. Marines and allied nations launched an amphibious and airborne operation in Mogadishu, Somalia, to restore order to the war-torn nation, authorized by U.N. Security Council Resolution 794 that was actually passed on December 3. So it was executed on December 9. And you might remember the movie Black Hawk Down. That was what this whole thing was about. That's going to do it for your headlines this Friday, December the 9th. You're listening to Fault Lines. All right, so let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have this conversation about the new release or the new tranche of information coming from Barry Weiss um, on the Twitter files. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We will be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone, 202-521-1320. We will have to get to you Monday. So we are going to give you, what is it called? A, oh, what's the name of the word? What's the name of the word? An IOU. We're going to give no, you an so IOU like, for Monday. Yeah, what? I know. It's like at the last minute, she was like, what are you talking about? Uh, but look, let's get to our guests. One of the most interesting things, we've been having this conversation about the Twitter files. Initially, Matt Taibbi came out with them, and then it was Barry Weiss. Let's have a conversation about this. This is fascinating to me. I love this story. So we have Chris Ruby. She's the CEO of Ruby Media Group, a public relations and social media agency. She's a frequent on-air TV contributor, and speaks on social media, tech trends, and crisis communications. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. One of the most interesting things about this is the pre-bunking by the FBI. And this is Miranda Devine's word, pre-bunking. And so right here, quote, I was told that these meetings that the intelligence community expected individuals associated with political campaigns would be subject to hacking attacks and that the material obtained through those hacking attacks would likely be disseminated over social media platforms, including Twitter. This is uh, said Roth on December 4th, 2020, declaration to the Federal Election Commission. Quote, I also learned in these meetings that there were rumors that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. And these are people who are basically making the point of saying, look, this is what was taking place at the company itself. And this is basically taking place in testimony that these people are giving. Give me your take on these Twitter files. Are you surprised by the information coming out from the re- release itself? 
or in general? Just how do you view the information that's being released by Elon Musk in these a tranche of documents? So I, I think the, these Twitter files are, are a bit controversial. Uh, so last night we saw, again, a new or a second installment of the Twitter files by Barry Weiss, in which there were uh, at least 28 different tweets on uh, Twitter by Barry Weiss, where she started to include actual screenshots, one of which is of the account of at libs of TikTok. And here in this uh, screenshot, for example, you can see the back end uh, UX of what someone who uh, who was at the highest level of trust and safety at Twitter would be seeing. And on, on this one, we see it says, quote, do not take action on user without consulting with SIP PES. We also see important user de- details, right? So it says access email, it says activity. We see that they had access to direct messages, which is of course cause for concern for anyone who uh, is using direct messages and didn't realize that Twitter employees could read those. But more importantly than that, right, we can start to see, for example, here it says recent abuse strike trends blacklist. On another, uh, on another person, it said search blacklist. So things like that are extremely concerning. For anyone in media who's been reporting on, on social media and uh, what Big Tech has done to personalities on the right, is this surprising to me? No. Because we've felt it, we've seen it, we've known it was going on. These screenshots confirm, I feel, what we already know. Yeah, this this was something that has actually impacted me directly, and I've been saying it forever. And and you know, it's it's just it's like you're screaming into a black hole, right? Because nobody's going to do anything about it. Elon, you said he was going to free everybody and unlock everything. Well, now he says that Elon says he's going to give you um, some kind of tool in Twitter that's going to allow you to know if you are being blacklisted or blackballed. Can we actually trust that anyways? Yeah, I have a lot of questions about all of this, right? So there's a difference between the idea that he tweets and the reality on the back end of making that happen, right? And so we're seeing, for example, right now, um, just four or five screenshots. But are we all going to be able to see the same level of granular detail here? Uh, so I have very similar questions to to you as well. And what's most interesting on this last night, actually, is that the current head of trust and safety for Twitter, I will uh, get you her name here. Her name is Ella Irwin. So she said, correct, quote, for security purposes, the screenshots requested came from me. So we could ensure no PII was exposed. We did not give this access to reporters and no reporters were not accessing user DMs, end quote, by Ella Irwin current head of trust and safety at Twitter. This raises a whole new level of questions for many users who may not have been impacted by any of this at all, right? But let's say they're left-leaning users who are now wondering why is, why is Twitter's current head of safety releasing this information to reporters directly and then bragging that they're releasing it on Twitter? Yeah, I, I was going through some of those, some of the tweets and Barry, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously she did a very good job um, you mentioned the libs of TikTok, and that's one of the huge ones because what was happening is is that they were treating them based on this idea that they had committed some type of violation, but then admitted that there was no violation committed. They suspended her, and one of the and we talked about it here as well. But um, one of those one of the many times that libs of TikTok was suspended was after that that. Um, um, the hospital, I can't remember where it was, but it was this question of whether or not this gender affirming care story where the reporter 
it got the hospital to essentially admit that there was gender affirming, gender, quote unquote, affirming care for uh, minors. Well, what happened is, is that TikTok suspended, I'm sorry, um, uh, Twitter suspended Libs of TikTok for even covering that story. But at the same time, when the owner, I can't, I can't pronounce her name, the person who benign it, Raychick, um, but when Raychick reported that her actual home address was doxxed on Twitter, Twitter said that they found no violation and they allowed the post to stay. So this isn't some small little thing. You have instances like the privacy and security of someone doxing their home with their address that is allowed to stay, but um, the reporting on the gender affirming care, that is something that can get your account suspended. Yeah, I mean, the doxing never should be allowed to stay, right? And so there's, I can't imagine anyone is, is really going to argue. I guess it's the people internally they did argue that that was okay, which is, which is crazy, right? And so I think for many, having these tweets out there um, or these screenshots that we saw last night from Barry Weiss are finally really giving, they're showing like the gaslighting that's really been going on and, and everyone, right? Like has, even myself as a Twitter space, doing many Twitter space posts, when I do one now, no one can even see that I'm doing it. But I was told numerous times that we don't favor, Twitter doesn't favor conservatives or, uh, or, or uh, liberals. We don't favor anyone. But obviously what we saw is that's just simply not true. However, I do have some issues with what Elon Musk tweeted last night, that there's going to be this formal process to appeal all of this. Right? If we know that many of these decisions that were made are somewhat just biased and ridiculous, then what are we even appealing against? That's a, that's a very good point. Why, why set up? Because we, we've been talking about the arbitrary nature of this. Right. And in fact, even since Elon has been there, there are still some arbitrary oh, yeah. um, censoring of account free Garland Nixon, yes. by the way. Or Scott Ritter. Yeah. Or Ritter. That's yeah. right. So we're seeing that this still is happening. So nothing's, until he changes that, and I said before, until he changes those type of people, yes, let's get, shadow banning. Let's take care of all of that. But until people like Garland Nixon and others are restored without having to go through a an appeals right. process, because Donald Trump Twitter didn't have court. to go through yeah. an appeals process. If you can restore Donald Trump's account, then you can, you can, do can that easily just do a batch restoration of accounts without this appeals. I can see you having that maybe for someone, maybe like an Alex Jones or a Nick Fuentes, but there should be a basic understanding when it comes to this where you don't have to go through, jump through hoops to file an appeal. Elon Musk, you're there now. Do a blanket restoration I mean, out, of accounts. Outside of people that disseminate child porn. Yeah. Right. Uh, outside of that, I don't see how he is actually being the the free speech absolutist that he marketed himself to be in the lead up of buying Twitter. I never believed it, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, I, this has become, this topic for conservatives and Republicans on Twitter has become more controversial than even discussing the vaccine or COVID. I mean, it's just really crazy because any questioning of Musk, it's as if you're questioning the entire party. It's a, it's, he's been put up in such a high mm -hmm. level that people have, you know, they're referring to him as Trump or DeSantis, but he's not running for office, right? And so on some level, we need to be able to ask real questions and, and again, hold 
people accountable for the promises that they're making. And for example, I had, I'll just share here, the follow-up questions I have from those screenshots, I asked account compromise. How is this defined by Twitter? Testing tab, what is this used for? Guano tab, what does that mean? Batch action tool, how, what, how is that being used? Spam, how is spam currently being defined? Payment, what information is collected and who can see it? And then spaces, what data is logged? This is really important information that everyone deserves an answer to based on those screenshots, right? And so I believe that there's one agenda in sharing the screenshots, but everyone else, the regular user who may not have been affected by this is going to have all of that set of questions and want those answers, the questions I just posed. So far, no answers have been given. Give me, I have a question for you with Section 230. I mean, this seems like a rabbit violation of Section 230. I mean, they're basically using political inclination in order to make a determination on who tweets they show, who tweets they get rid of, what accounts do they want to basically block or shadow ban or not show at all. Um, what do you think the consequences are going to be for this going forward? I mean, like you said, Republicans have a bee in their bonnet about this because they were the ones that were mainly affected by it um, more so. What do you think is going to happen as a result? So that's a really interesting question. What I think is that we are on the, the tip of the AI uh, revolution, and that affects Twitter in a, in a very real way. And Elon Musk was also just posting about it in terms of chat GPT and open AI and not realizing that their their data was being trained on it. And the reason this is my answer to your question is because so much of content moderation is going to be uh, machine uh, generated in the future. We're already seeing that with Meta. And as that happens in Twitter and moves away from Musk taking this very public stance on, on uh, Twitter and on these high-profile accounts, I believe people are not going to be so happy because machines get things wrong. And actually, the current head of uh, Twitter's Trust and Safety, Ella, also tweeted about this last week, stating something very similar. And so when you deploy uh, artificial intelligence at scale, to make batch content decisions, including removal decisions, it's not always going to get it right. And if you don't have real human intervention in that process, it can signal a disaster. That is a very good point, especially with the number of people who basically left Twitter. I would imagine he's probably going to be leaning more on the AI thing. And Malik, I agree with you. I mean, but see, I don't know how you disambiguate certain people from others. Like, let's say, how do you get put everybody on believe fuentes off for a approval process like i don't know the mechanics the pra in practice it, make, it gets a little difficult yeah i don't think you can. i mean unless you just reset everybody accounts all right start from day one new twitter you know but um chris thank you for this i really appreciate this chris ruby we got to bring you back um this is great being able to have somebody to talk to about social media stuff chris ruby is the ceo of ruby media group a public relations and social media agency chris is a frequent on-air TV contributor and speaks on social media, tech trends, and crisis communications. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Abdul, back in a moment for the last 30 minutes of the week. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And AOC is in a bit of trouble. She's Acosta in a bind? She's in a bit of a bind. Oh, no. She's not crying at the border. This is a different oh, situation. Oh, oh, okay. But she is under an ethics investigation. And this is going back to the gala, the Met Gala. If you remember, AOC wore this very long dress called Tax the Rich. 
Now, the wild part about this is the person who made that dress for hadn't paid their taxes. There's that. The person was already rich and hadn't paid their taxes. So there's this kind of double irony associated with it. It's like, so wait, you're justifying you're showing up here with a tax and rich dress and the person who made it didn't pay their taxes and the person was rich? Okay, a little bit of irony associated with this. Let's do this. Let's jump into the story. And we're joined with Angie Wong. Angie Wong is a political... A journalist. Yeah, as a journalist. And that's right. Angie, I'm going to give you your bio. It's not up on my document right now, and I'll come back to it. But how are you doing this morning while we pull this up? How are you guys? Angie, so happy to have you once again. Thanks for joining us. And there it is. Angie Wong is a national media spokesperson for Veterans for America First. She's a graduate of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. After graduating, she had a successful career as a news editor, reporter, and columnist in the United States and Asia for publications such as South China Morning Post, Reuters, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Great pedigree. Yes. So thank you. Let's not let's not forget, though, it's not just the dress. OK, although I oh, do yes. I do believe that was a crime against fashion. <laughs> I think that's a big crime, big crime. And, and that should be investigated mm-hmm. for sure. But also the tens of thousands of dollars it costs to go to that's the right. Met Gala, which she says tickets were donated to her. Yeah, that's a big no, no. Uh, and uh, if you're a congressional member, you cannot take any gifts. Is it over? What is it? Two hundred dollars? Something no, I like think that, it's yeah. less. I think it's like 25 or 50 bucks. Is that low? It's very low. It's something. It's very, very low, and you have to report it. Um, clearly, she thought she was above the law, wore the dress, and had a great time. Look, the dress, uh, you know what? It made back the money in PR dollars, right? She wore that thing. It went global, and she became a bigger superstar for wearing that dress. So no matter how the health ethnic committee uh, slaps her, it doesn't matter because, you know, that thing was uh, PR gold. Mm-hmm. So, and people mimicked it. Remember, uh, Lauren Bobart then wore a similar dress to Mar-a-Lago uh, a few weeks later. I forget what it said. I'm trying to, I got to look it up. But it was something else. It was a comedy on it. So it became a parody. It was great. Um, but I think here's what's really happening. Why did this take, what? Uh, six months to come out. Why did the, you know, why is she now being punished for it six months later? It must be because uh, right now they're assigning house seats, right, uh, for various committees. And whether it's Kevin McCarthy, who's going to be the next majority leader or not, um, someone, whoever's coming in is basically going to not give her, you know, a, a desired selected seat. So I think that's what's happening. Um, and and rightly so. Now they can justify, you know, why she's not going to get, uh, you know, whether it's the finance seat that she wants or a foreign committee or whatever it is. She's not going to be looked at uh, favorably for any choice seat. So oh. you're thinking they set on this I'm, in order to basically well, yeah. use it as a weapon they, to go they after said the investigation yeah. began in June. So we're only learning about it now. now. So the timing of it becoming public is questionable, especially because um, I think they might have. I think Angie's onto something. They might have been waiting to see what the election results look like before they announce. And because I can't say this word, I'm going to call it rooster block. They rooster blocked her <laughs> to make sure that she doesn't get like a prominent seat. Yeah that she's vying for. But I'm, I'm going to say, if if God rest her soul, Joan Rivers, if Joan Rivers was alive, she would have slashed her up in that dress. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, and by the way, Bobert, Bobert, let's go Brandon. 
Mm, that was her dress. SJB. Yeah. Bright red with Let's Go Branding and white letters. That's right. And look, again, it was funny. It did its job. It was intended to be, you know, funny. Look, I'm about to go to the Young Republicans Club Gala in New York this Saturday. And someone sent me Casey DeSantis's dress in yellow gold, the same dress that she wore uh, when DeSantis won his reelection on November 8th. Right. And I'm like, am I supposed to wear this? Right. Because like someone sent it to me thinking it would be really funny. It would be very meta. I, I don't know. I mean, there's a that's where we are. You know, we're we're in that stage. But I mean, is it a loner dress? Is it a loner? Or did they give it to you? It was uh, sent in a box from Saks Fifth Avenue, and it was the exact dress that Casey DeSantis wore when she was, you know, with her mermaid hair and her beautiful family on stage when DeSantis just got reelected. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a dig. I think they sent it to me because they knew I was going to Mar-a-Lago for an event, and I I said I'm not going to be disrespectful to Melania or the Trump family by wearing this dress. But and I thank them for the dress. Uh, ultimately, it's just, you know, it's, but that's, that's the play, right? And I love it. I think it's a great little game that we're all in. Um, yeah, no, this dress definitely has legs. I think that you're going to see now that AOC is going to lose a lot of power because of the moves that are being made against her. Clearly, she's been a problem and she's been problematic throughout her, you know, four, four years there. She's only been there two terms. Um, and they need to kind of control her. And this is the messaging. It's like, all right, if you want to do anything in this new Congress, you better start behaving. But she has behaved. Right. She's fell, fallen she, in line behind the Nancy Pelosi. The entire way through, she's fell in line. I mean, the, she's been getting embarrassed on all of this and losing credibility from her own side on a lot of this stuff. I mean, for example, the $15 now minimum wage thing. I mean, ALC was basically backing this to the hilt. Biden, apparently, supposedly, was backing this to the hill. You get Nancy Sh- um, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi backing it. Joe Manchin is like, yeah, we're not going to do it. Joe Biden goes and tells people, well, look, I don't think we can pull this off. And the other Republicans was like, yeah, Joe, you probably shouldn't even try. ALC and the squad had enough votes in order to be cantankerous and refuse to allow that legislation to go. She fell in line, even with meaning in one situation after the next, when Mama Bear pulls her chain, she falls in line. That's what I mean. Like, so I understand that they may try to malign her and they didn't necessarily like some of the moves she might have well, been making early on that she might have been louder. But from a well, remember with in the, real world term sense with the rooster block that's happening, <laughs> it's because Mama Bear's not in charge anymore. That's interesting. That's interesting. That's right. She's gone now. So who is going to basically push her back in? I don't know. This is you see all the moves being made, right? You see cinema now. She's now independent. Everyone's realigning themselves. There's a lot of backdoor stuff happening that we don't know about. Um, so I think it's, you know, this is the time. I mean, I don't know how many election cycles have you guys been through. I don't ever see anything. I've never seen anything this exciting and so much movement happening right before January. Uh, but I think it's great. I think, you know, uh, let's see how AOC reacts to the dress, to the investigation. Um, ultimately, you know, she could be the new Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't think that Hakeem Jeffries will be able to wield the same sort of power and influence over AOC and the squad as Nancy Pelosi did. But one thing that I wanted to mention to you, and we haven't talked to the, talked about it on the show yet because I was reading it, and I was I was hoping one of my co-hosts didn't actually spill the beans. Well, apparently, 
couple of days after the Democrats secured that seat in in, um, Georgia, I'm now reading. Kirsten Sinema Uh changed her party affiliation to independent. Just saw it like five minutes ago. Yeah. And what, and Angie just dropped it herself. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? And I know what it means in literal sense that she's basically saying, okay, I'm done. You guys have attacked me. You guys have hit me. Right. Her own party. Yeah. Her own party. But Arizona, purple state at this point, um, the people voted for her to be a Democrat. Are they going to tolerate her being an independent? I know. I'm just processing all this at, at all at once. It's an absolute power play. Because mm-hmm. now, guess what? No party really has control. I mean, yes, the Democrats still have uh, uh, Kamala Harris to jump in, but they don't really. Um, so this is, so she's going to get, basically, Cinema's going to get whatever she wants. <laughs> she yeah. just asked for the sky and get it because she can go either way. And I think it's a fantastic move. It's real politics. I mean, power I, play. Man, I've never seen something so exciting. No, but yeah, that's going to hurt her in the election, though. I mean, oftentimes people. But it may not if it's a strong enough power play. And like Angie says, if she shoots for the moon and I she gets it, super her skeptical. constituents and her big donors are going to keep backing her. I am super skeptical. I mean, all things being equal, when people want to vote for a Democrat, they vote for a Democrat. If they want to vote for a Republican, they vote for a Republican. Now, Arizona is kind of different. That, Like I said, I mean, I've lived there. So the people only care about, like, what results are you bringing us? Yeah. And so her go swinging, you know, to to becoming independent somewhere in the center, I guess. Yeah. Um, as long as she collects for Arizona, they will vote for her. I don't think They're Democrats. They're not that married to party in Arizona. Okay, we'll see. I mean, I am very skeptical that people who basically were voting for Democrats and who vote lockstep in Democrats are all of a sudden going to go to Senate and say, okay, we totally understand that you're becoming independent. I lived there. I anchored out there. The people in Arizona care about the border. They care about drugs. And they they like having guns. When I lived there, I don't know if it still is, but when I lived there, it was an open carry state. Jan Brewer was a very popular governor. Yeah. I think she can get away. I think it's more, more likely for her to get away with it in Arizona than like a Texas or a New York or a Maryland. I I think it's easier for her. But at the end of the day, much like we see with Bernie Sanders and Angus King, who's the other independent? um, Oh, I don't know. Angus King. Is that that him? Yeah, Well, whatever. Whoever the other um, independent senator is, at the end of the day, they caucus with Democrats. Right. So she's not saying that she's going to caucus with Republicans. Right. She's just saying she's changing her party registration to independent. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I brought up so soon after um, Democrats, because yeah. that is, so to Angie's point about the power play, she could have done it before then. But she did it. She did it after the fact because she wants to make it known. All And then this is just me, you know, being funny. Yeah. I think Kirst, she wanted to make it known. All of this stuff that y'all talking about, this power that I ain't go have, and how now that we have 51 votes and, you know, don't worry about, we don't have to worry about Kirsten Cinema or yeah. uh, Joe Manchin anymore. I have something for you. I'm going to register as an independent. But they were, she was exerting that control anyway. Her and Manchin right. were and already exerting re- that control. And now she really will. More and power. Obviously, see, that's why I think she's going to get punished for that. I think she's going to get punished for it. I mean, I look, know, we'll see, right? Yeah, I don't know when, when she's, I don't know when the re-election is up. But yeah. I do know that the electorate, if you even just look at this past cycle and in 2020, Arizona is a little different, even as far as they, um, how they run their elections. Yeah. Because it's like some non-party stuff that they have. So Arizona is She may be able different. to get away with Again, it, basically. She may yeah. in Arizona. Angie, this goes right back to Mama Bear Nancy. <laughs> 
because she's not there to punish That's Kirsten right. Cinema. That's right. <laughs> well, Cinema's in. Love it. It's like going to Congress. You're like a pretty smart person to get in, and then you like you get punished. Like it's just so funny to me uh, that there's still all these repercussions and you know all this weird stuff that you know high school stuff that takes place. But yeah, no, I mean I don't know who's gonna push everyone back in line. We'll see. I mean, do you think? Kevin McCarthy is going to be able to whip everybody. You think Jeffries is going to be able to do it? I don't know. Well, keep in mind, Sinema is a senator. No, it doesn't matter. Nancy Pelosi is the strongest, most powerful woman on Capitol Hill. Yeah, no, but she's not going Full to exert stop. power on cinema. She can. How? Not directly. Because, Nan- I'm telling you, because Nancy Pelosi is de- the de facto leader of the Democrat Party. So it doesn't matter. But I don't think it yeah, would matter. I, I don't matter. think she would be she able has to no power over cinema. Maybe in the House. Not directly. Yeah, I'm maybe in the you, House. the influence. But yeah. For the Senate. I don't buy it. They, it's the influence. They will ignore Nancy yeah. Pelosi. She has no power over the, the things that with, take place in the money, Senate. With the money. That's where it boils down to just Nancy Pelosi's purse strings and the power that she has over the Democrat Party and the DNC. So you can't, now that she's not officially there anymore to, to lead, de facto lead the DNC and, and you know, the, the caucus um, in, in the lower house, because Hakeem Jeffries, who's, who's going to be afraid of him? Right. No. I mean, look, I don't think anybody in the Senate is afraid of anybody in the House, period. And as for Hakeem Jeffries, I don't know what control he's going to have over starting off. I mean, he's not going to wield this level of force or power that Nancy Pelosi had where she can punish and take names and all this other stuff. I don't see look, it. Look, Joe Manchin was meeting with Nancy Pelosi. They've known each other for decades. That's yeah. how I mean, if, if you think there's an illusion of the division between the House and the Senate, you guys would be wrong because the money literally trickles through Nancy. She is the biggest I don't doubt they're friends. Yeah, no, they are two separate bodies. And no, I understand they don't, that. I think you guys are missing what I'm saying, case, though. Because Pelosi would no, have been able disagree. to influence cinema yeah. to vote in favor of the legislation that they were holding yeah, out on. that's right. I, There's I, only so much, but what I'm saying is it boils down to how much money Nancy Pelosi can rake in. And that that is ultimately the greatest power on Capitol Hill. She is effectively the the most powerful woman in Washington, D.C. And now she has stepped down. And that's that's where I think the big change is going to happen is because she's not there to scare everybody. Right. And everybody. What what do you think? And I was just sitting here thinking about it. We have a younger Hakeem Jeffries and we have a younger Kevin McCarthy. Um, Kevin McCarthy at least has been in leadership um, much longer than a Hakeem Jeffries. But is it possible that what we're kind of seeing, or I don't know if growing pains is the wrong word for it, but when you have someone like, for instance, like a Nancy Pelosi powerhouse, a um, a Mitch McConnell powerhouse, they're institution, like they're literally institutions. Are we kind of seeing what happens when the gavel is passed to a younger generation and that they have to then build up that same level of power? Because I don't know if it would be easy for anybody, um, whether it's on the left or the right. And I'm just wondering, is this more of they have to kind of make a name for themselves and scare people in their own time? You know, I'm just wondering, is it more so of that thing? Like, this is all new to us. And maybe if, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell were in leadership many decades ago, they would be experiencing similar things as far as pushback from people in the party. Yeah, no, I look, I one, I welcome a younger generation coming in. We do need young blood in both parties. Right. 
just so they understand things like Section 230 and AI learning and all that new stuff. Yeah, the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Sending emails, <laughs> right. You know, like basic stuff. Like, you know, don't, you know, give Google everything. <laughs> um, so I don't believe that Nancy Pelosi is not going to have her fingers all over the place for the next couple of years. I think as long as this woman is living and breathing, she is going to have her hands in politics. Um, I, uh, um, uh, Manila, was, was, Manila is, was absolutely right in saying that she still controls the money in D.C. Her congressional fund every single month, month takes millions of dollars in reoccurring donations. She doesn't have to work for this money. It just gets deducted from people's credit cards uh, every single month. And I, I, don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard it was $20 million a month, right? So she controls money in D.C. going to the Democrats on every possible money faucet. So wait, is this going to hit their bottom line then? I mean, let's say, like you said, she's probably not, she's still probably going to be involved in fundraising and everything else. But this, with her not being in there, the willpower, I would imagine that this is going to, on some level, affect the Democrats' ability to appropriate cash, right? Or immorality. Yeah, because she would have to be running some sort of, like, parallel yeah. in order to keep the level of funding. Because think of Hillary Clinton. When Hillary Clinton was running the Clinton Foundation and she was Secretary of State, she was getting all the money in the world. The moment that she loses that race, Clinton Foundation... You know, it's like, well, it's why am I going to give you now. money? Yeah, Let's close right. shop. Right. It's like, why am I going to give you money if you can't influence these events? It's reopened now. So yeah. it can, it, you can turn the faucet on and off. Yeah. She has the power. Yeah. And I think she will get money and she will continue to be out there. She's going to continue doing her work at a different capacity. Well, you know, that's soon to be told. It could be like at, at an Obama capacity, right? She might have a, like a, you know, nice little room in her basement uh, to control everything. I don't know. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's a, I think when they're going to pass the gavel, there's going to be, you know, obviously lots of discussion. Um, it's not going to be a complete clean cut. She's going to be, you know, certainly in the power rooms of Congress um, all the time. Um, for a while, and let's see. Uh, we'll see who the new leaders are. Clearly, her and uh, Kevin McCarthy—they're good friends, and um, they they chat all the time. So I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, just kind of that uh, freshman year involved that she's going to be a part of. Just want to add that, you know, I think look, Kevin McCarthy—it's looking more and more likely that he's got the vote, right? And we'll see come January third. And I think that is, uh, I think Nancy in the back is helping him put together all the votes that he needs. Uh, that's what I'm hearing. And, you know, uh, she's a great advisor. Say what you will about her, but she's been, you know, she's been very valuable um, to Congress. And she has been, you know, they're the longest. So I think there's going to be a lot of handholding. Uh, she knows that McCarthy, if nobody else, she'd rather have a McCarthy right. than an Andy Biggs or somebody yeah. else, right? So she's going to help out McCarthy. Um, and I think, so I, I think that's going to be an easy transition. And uh, McCarthy probably in trade will make sure that, you know, her legacy is intact. Look, Nancy Pelosi's daughter just put out a documentary on HBO about her mother's life. Right. Like no one else was going to make that documentary, but her daughter, Alexandra. Um, and it's all about preserving legacy at this point, because, you know, it could be if it was if the house was given to, let's say, I don't know, uh, Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, someone a little bit more extreme, they could rip her apart and they can certainly, you know, air her dirty laundry on day one. 
Uh, I don't think we're going to see that. And I think that, you know, that is where, you know, if I were Nancy, that's where, that's what, where my head's at. That's what I'm thinking about right now. And thinking about, you know, how to basically uh, ride out this rainbow uh, and, 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 and basically have a nice legacy going forward. So, well, what do you guys think? Because at some point, um, Nancy, I'm sure she's definitely looking at retiring altogether. Now, my thought is that she's going to take these next two years um, to kind of hold Hakeem Jeffries' hand, kind of guide him along. Because as Angie said, she has, yes, she's going to be an advisor. I mean, she's going to play a very important role, as she should, considering who she is. But I am I wonder after 2024, because she'll be up for re-election, does she retire in 2024 or does she see what happens at the presidential because she's no longer in power? Right. So I just wonder, does she retire in 2024? I say she dies on the hill. <laughs> oh, you think she stays? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Power is sexy. And I don't know, maybe that's the only Trump sexy comes she's ba- getting. If Trump comes back. Will Nancy Pelosi stay? Because obviously she can't stand behind him and rip up or rip up the State of the Union speech anymore. All right, right. (laughs) Well, I mean, but does she leave? All right, what do you think, Angie? I say she dies on the hill. I'm I'm surprised. I mean, she was forced to give up the gavel, but, you know, I say say she stays. I think she did her job. Her job this year was to make sure that Trump did not have a successful 2024, right? Right now, if you did the math and you look at the key states, we don't have it, um, only because the electoral votes are not there. And I, you know, I'm not a political consultant, so I don't make money on this. I don't have to. I can say this, right? We don't have 2024 if the election happened today. And that was what Nancy had to ensure: is to make sure that these key states—Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan—that uh, none of it would would be accessible to a Trump Congress. And also a Trump 2024. So she did her job, and now she gets to retire. Um, again, I don't. I think she realizes, like you know, what her capacities are. Someone probably had a nice chat with her and her husband, and said, "Look, you know, it's time. This is it. You know." And it was probably a group effort, and this was a good time to go because she wouldn't go unless she wanted to go. And I think she made the right decision in retiring this round. Of course, she's going to be involved, um, but more and more likely, you know, she's I'm sure she's seen it with other uh, members of Congress and other politicians, how they slowly retire. So I'm sure she's prepped for it. She's a big girl. I'm not worried about her. I think she'll be fine. She's sitting on like billions of dollars and all this like, you know, um, semiconductor chip stock. I mean, she's fine. That's from her son, her son's investments and stuff in China. Oh, right. Business dealings. Remember, he used to, you know, hop on flights with her. Mm-hmm. China, he what, like hundred million dollars in a bank or something, like some insane amount of money. Yeah, her her husband's investments, yeah. her son, um, her daughter is a successful filmmaker. You know, that's creepy on some level. I mean, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House while doing these investments on the side that apparently, you know, that type of stuff. That she makes laws for. So yes, yes, it greatly well, problematic. I mean, she comes from a political family. That's true, but. They learn how to do it. That's how you learn. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Family business. And she's going to teach that to the next generation coming up. Family business. Just saying. Yeah, I guess you can say it that way. So, Angie, last question. What do you think is going to basically come out of this going into the next 2024? Um, 
I mean, like you said, you believe that she was able to hold down certain seats or let's say certain sections of the country in order to basically prevent Trump from coming in office. And better yet, different question. Before we let you go, Twitter files. What are Republicans going to do on this? I mean, mainstream media has basically tried to ignore the story or attack the people who are basically releasing the story itself. Um, this, I would imagine, from the standpoint of Republicans, affects them greatly. I would imagine they're gr- very angry about it. What are they going to do when they get in office? I mean, is it going to be something done on the Hill immediately once they take power? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm certainly hearing that uh, there's going to be investigations started right, starting pretty immediately. We're, we just saw a big data dump yesterday. Right. Uh, from Barry Weiss. I was at my kids' school pageant. They had a Christmas pageant, you know, with Jesus and the shepherds and the whole thing. And all of a sudden, this, like, Twitter file drops. I'm like, oh, I gotta, you know, be a bad mom and just, like, look down on my phone for a while. It was, it was, it was delicious stuff, right? It was, I don't know how many, how many tweets uh, from Barry Weiss about how there were Twitter blacklists. And, you know, and Charlie Kirk was on it. It was like the who's who's list. Right. And everyone. And now Elon has come out and said he is going to put an identifier on everyone's Twitter account to see whether or not they've been labeled, uh, you know, if they've been suppressed or not. I, I forget the exact wording he said, but essentially, if you are blacklisted, you'll know uh, after after his engineers get uh, to labeling everybody. I still don't believe it. You don't buy it. I don't buy it. You don't think so? I don't trust. I don't trust him. I know. I, last time we spoke, you said that there was a uh, there was some play here where he wants SpaceX and you know and all these other government contracts. And I think you're right. Well, Manila's been shadow banned, so if that happens, I'm salty. It, yeah. I'm yeah, salty, it, Angie. It, well, salty. The thing is, is that if Elon does whatever it is that's suggesting he's going to do, then Manila will be able to tell you. I will tell yes, you directly. I will tell everybody directly because I've been like, like, salty about this for all year, more than as you should as you be. Should. Yeah, yeah, as we'll, you should. We'll be. leave that right there, Angie Wong. We always appreciate having you. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. You're quickly becoming one of our favorites. Yes. Angie Wong is a national media spokesperson for Veterans for America First. She's a graduate of Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. After graduating, she had a successful career as a news editor, reporter, and columnist in the United States and Asia for publications such as South China Morning Post, Reuters, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Angie, once again, thank you. You guys hear the music. We come to the end of another week. Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, Abdul. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineer. And I want to thank all of you. All the rumblers, all the listeners. Excellent. Have a great weekend. We'll see you guys bright and early Monday morning. Have a good one, all. Fault Lines.